afternoon. I am Ronaldo McKenzie, and welcome to another episode of the Neoliberal Round podcast. Today we have with us John Anthony Castro, the U.S. 2024 presidential candidate. And we had an opportunity to interview him for over about an hour and a half, probably two hours, and we have it right here. And we invite you to listen to the entire interview. It was revealing. It was exciting. He talks about his passion. He talks about his dreams. He talked about his concerns. He talks about his fears. He talks about his plans to overcome those. And, and I tell you, and I, he, I also posed questions to him that, that I got from many Americans who I was able to ask, um, to ask of him some questions, and he was able to answer them. And I invite you to, to, to check out this particular young man who, who, who is running this grassroots organization with an entrepreneur who started, who started from, 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 from nothing really, who, who, who grew up in this country from a working class family. And now, and, and he, he will tell you, and if you check him out, he, he will tell you that he had a debt, student loan debt of over $325,000. But he worked hard. And today he's a millionaire running his own company that he, he will reveal that just was valued at over $180 million. If, and now he's aspiring to lead this country and to apply some of what he has learned to what he plans to do as he leads this country, as he plans to lead, lead this country. So I invite you to listen to the interview right after these messages. Yeah, yeah, good to have you too. Yes, yes, it's great to have you. Let me begin officially. Good morning. I'm Ronaldo McKenzie, and welcome to another episode of the Neoliberal Round podcast. And finally, we have with us Mr. John Anthony Castro, the U.S. 2024 presidential candidate. Good morning, John, and welcome again to the show. And I am so, we are so delighted to have you. Thank you, thank you. How was the weekend for you? A very busy weekend? Oh, no, actually very relaxing weekend. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. That's good. So, who is John Castro? Who is John Anthony Castro? And I actually visited your page and saw that um, you were born in... Um, I, I will not try and pronounce that, the, the city. Precious modern. Yeah. What's it called? Well, uh, sorry, Lenstool is what's on my birth certificate. But... Uh, oh. Okay, and um, tell me, do you have a... Um, do you speak some German? Uh, very, very, very little. Like, very rudimentary elementary. <laughs> okay, good, 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 good. And um, so, first of all, tell me, what was life, what was life like growing up in Germany? Uh, very different. Uh, we didn't have television uh, on a regular. Um, and, and, yeah, that is something that's very unique about my life. The first 10 years of my life was in Germany. Um, home in Mississippi that would record television shows like Simpsons and Living Color and stuff like that, Saturday Night Live. And then uh, she would put it all in a VHS cassette and then mail it to us in Germany. And then we would watch the same episodes like a thousand times. <laughs> but oh, uh, wow. it, was, it was mostly playing outside at the playground. And that's actually where I learned to German. Um, yes. 
I didn't find out until much later in my life from my mother and my father that uh, I apparently spoke fluent German when I was a child. And they said, you just picked it up on the playground, just playing with all the other German kids. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty interesting, but, uh, but I was there because my father was stationed in the military. And so, yes. uh, yeah, first 10 years of my life was out there in Germany. Yes. Okay. That's nice. And, um, to so the first 10 years of your life and that uh, so you went to school in Germany and, um, any problems in adjusting when you, no, no I mean, Oh, when I came back, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the customs were a little bit different. Uh, you know, everybody over there, at least in the town that we were in, they were very, uh, very, very warm, very friendly, you know, so we would always hug each other, uh, yeah. you know, each other a kiss on the cheek whenever we saw each other. And I remember right. I, I got in trouble in elementary school when I came back and I did that. <laughs> and they were just oh, like, wow. oh yeah, you don't do that here. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, so <laughs> that, was, that was pretty funny. I had to, I had to kind of adjust that. Um, yeah, because I mean, in Europe, you know, it's just everybody's a little bit more warm. But uh, yes. but yeah, yeah, it was. It, it, it didn't take too long though. And you know, I saw that you worked at Pizza Hut. I was very. I look. I did some research, and I was. I wanted to know more about you, so uh, I did some research, and I saw that you worked at Pizza Hut for two years. Yeah. Can while you were in high school, and let me tell you, I have been talking about um, the interview with you with many different people, and there was a. There was a, um, a Stop the Violence March here in Philadelphia weekend, and I got an opportunity to meet several hundred people, interview them, and many of the young people had questions for you. Many of them have dreams, and one young lady, and, and I'm going to actually play some of the interviews so that you can hear it. One young lady said um, she played and she wants to be a musician, and she wants to be a big musician, and she just and she wanted to find out, you know, how they can relate to you because you worked in high. You worked at Pizza Hut, and then, but here you are. And actually, you know, I wrote a question, and I'm going to tell you what I have. The question I had, I have. I said, you well, I mean, let me not assume. Uh, your parents, where are your parents from? Were they born here in the U.S.? Yeah, they're, they're American. They're born here in the U.S. They're American. Okay, great. So, and, um, and, but, um, but you have a name, it's Castro. And, you know, I'm Jamaican. I'm from Jamaica. And many people relate to, to, uh, to, to we are familiar. So when people hear Castro, what comes to mind? What do you have to <laughs> people about that? I'm sorry. Say that. What was the last question? Yeah, the, the, the name Castro evokes a lot of name. Would you have to explain yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, it, it's funny because yeah, of course that's come up my whole life. Um, yeah. You know, I heard it a lot growing up as a child, and so you know, naturally, when you hear people make that direct reference to another person so many times you're going to be curious like who is this person that, that shares my name uh, and so uh, i actually did a lot of research <laughs> yes. uh, you know on cuban history even though I, i'm mexican-american uh, right. you know uh, i did a lot of research in cuban history from fidel castro was just because again like you i would hear it at least once every three to four months from the age of five all the way to like 17 you know all throughout high school yeah. and so you know, there, there's only so much before a person's going to be like, you know, who is this person? I really want to understand, like, why does everybody know his name? <laughs> yes. um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 a name. You know, uh, I, I look at uh, one thing that made me feel really happy was when Obama got elected. You know, because his name was Barack Hussein Obama, and we had yes, yes, yes. with Saddam Hussein. 
-huh. You know, in, in Iraq, and I know a lot of people thought like, oh, that's it. You know, his name's too weird. It sounds like Osama and yeah. Hussein, and and you know, it sounds like a terrorist and and a dictator together. But uh, you know, to me, a name is just a name. You know, it's it's my family yes. name. Uh, you know, at least at least in my lineage, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but in Texas, there's actually a Castroville, uh, so a city called Castroville in south of uh, San Antonio, and then an actual county named Castro County. Uh, and it roots back to an individual by the name of Henry, Henry Castro, uh, who was actually one of the founders of the state of Texas. They were only the top three people that brought the most settlers to the state of Texas was Sam Houston, everybody knows his name, Stephen F. Austin, everybody knows his name, uh, and Henry Castro. And yeah. what's funny is that, uh, well, I mean, not funny, I, th I think there's some hidden motivation behind it, but it seems that uh, even though Henry Castro brought more settlers to the state of Texas than Stephen F. Austin, Stephen F. Austin is obviously more widely known. And I feel like, right. you know, the uh, the contribution of, of the Castro family to the founding of the Republic of Texas is really uh, uh, possibly even intentionally downplayed. But uh, but yeah, the, the name actually has a lot of uh, significance in the state of Texas that I think uh, right, right. You know, history has uh, suppressed. That's interesting. Thank you so much. And um, you know, I this on my I do a blog as well. When I started the blog in 2010, and but there's one of the things I've always said, I've often said, and I've written about this. What is the ultimate of all things? Um, the ultimate of all things is that we become one with reality, with all of our individuality. And then I said, a man once said, once you label me, you negate. And that's what that's kaiju and um and i actually was reading something you said it was quite powerful quite remarkable which i wanted to ask you about and um you said so you someone asked you some time ago what do you believe are the core responsibilities for someone elected to this office and you responded by saying to always promote the interests of the nation over any ideology individual or interest group and um that might, and how do you propose to do that? And how does that speak to you? And um, in, we live in a society that is becoming more divided than anything else. And um, how do you propose that we can do that? Yeah, yeah, it's tough, um, <clears throat> especially in this hyper-politicized environment. You know, it's it's a it's very difficult. I'm a very pragmatic person. Um, I, I take a, so I grew up um, I grew up poor. You know, my family yes. was poor. That, that was our background. Um, you know, uh, I I became a union organizer. I looked at the system and the way that it was structured, and I felt that there was a lot of uh, you know inherent um, limitations and, and barriers put in place. I was able to overcome those, and but I know that I'm the exception, not the norm. Yes. And um, and so I I always told myself, you know, if I'm able to get out of this hole. I'm not just going to, you know, cut and run like everybody else. I want to build a ladder and I want to help others as well. Um, and I don't know what it is about human nature. A lot of times people just, they're like, hey, I went through it. You can go through it too. And yes. uh, I, I believe that perpetuating injustice is, is an injustice in and of itself. And it makes you, uh, you know, a, a passive participant, you know, in, this, in the system. And I don't want to do that. Uh, I want to look back at the system and, and figure out how to fix it. As I got a lot older, I started seeing more and more, uh, having more friends that, that were of a diverse political background, uh, conservative Republicans, and I started seeing their world perspective and how some of their, their views made sense. I didn't agree with them all, but they made sense. And so 
I started becoming more well-rounded. And what I eventually realized is what really makes America great is that you get liberal ideas, you get conservative ideas, and you force them all into a building, you know, that we call Congress, and you force them to hash it out. And what comes out of that is the best of both parties. But I think whenever there's one party rule, I, I think you're going to have disastrous consequences. You know, whether it's a far right state like, uh, you know, uh, Alabama, you know, or whether it's a far left state like California, um, you're going to see when it's like one party is in power, you're going to have a, a lot of bad outcome because you're, you're not getting a, a well-rounded view of the world and a well-rounded approach to solving problems. And so, you know, there are, there are again, conservative policies that, that I agree with and there are liberal policies that I agree with. Uh, when it comes to, I would say, foreign policy and economics, that's where I'm definitely uh, on the conservative side. When it comes to social issues, I'm definitely more on the liberal side. Okay. And, and see, that's the part that a lot of conservatives are like, wait a minute, then if you agree with a liberal on anything, why are you running as a Republican? Um, and it's just like, look, it's more from a libertarian angle. Yeah. And, and like there are even things that, that, that very few things that I agree with with libertarians. Um, but most importantly is the Fourth Amendment. I don't like government intrusion in any yeah. sense. And so when I see, you know, conservatives being misled into being obsessed with the lives of LGBTQ uh, individuals, to me, it's just like, leave them alone. You know what I mean? Like, like who cares? And then especially on the issue of, of abortion, um, they always ask me, are you pro-life or pro-choice? And I say, I'm pro, I support the right to choose life. Yeah. And not that I'm trying to be a politician and like trying to play both sides. What I'm trying to say here is that it has to do again with personal liberty, individual yeah. liberty, individual responsibility. You know, you, you make those choices. And, uh, you know, even me as, a, as, you know, having grown up as with a really strong Christian background, you know, it, to me, it's like, hey, we're not a theocracy. You know, I, yeah. I don't want to impose my beliefs on other people. I, I think it's incumbent upon Christians to go out there and win the hearts and minds of people, get yeah. them to use life. Um, right. Don't try to do it through government mandate. You know, that's yeah. that's not what, what Christian or, or, you know, is supposed to be about, you know. So, you know, it, it's things like that. You know, I, I take a very, again, very pragmatic approach to, to everything. Uh, I approach each issue, uh, just based on the facts and the data, you know, yeah. and whatever works uh, is, is going to work. And it's funny because, you know, even though I get labeled a rhino as a result of that, you know, rhino <laughs> being uh, Republican in name only, uh, yeah. a lot of people don't seem to realize that's exactly what Reagan was. Reagan, right. my a lot of my beliefs, except for economics, because I think he's horrible with economics, but <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of his beliefs and mine are we're about like 99% aligned on all the political stuff, except on some of the economics that like trickle down economics. You know, it was a good theory at that time. They tested it out, turned out to not be good. That's the only thing that I think Reagan and I would really divert on. But there, a lot of people don't know the earned income tax credit, which People have labeled the the most socialist uh, tax policy that grabs wealth from the upper class and gives it to the lower class. Yes. And they don't realize that was engineered by the Reagan administration. I mean, think about that for a second. Yes, I mean, yes, the, yes. The thing that now people attack is one of the most socialist tax policies in the Internal Revenue Code was actually designed by Reagan. Uh, right. And of course, you know, he did it more from the uh, uh, 
you know, corporate socialism standpoint to effectively subsidize low wages, you know, and, and, uh, and put that on the government's credit card rather than, you know, on Wall Street and, you know, the publicly traded companies that could afford it. But, uh, but again, I wanted, <laughs> and I wanted, sorry to enter, enter. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, sorry. I think I was, um, some time ago, I was listening to, I was reading an article in the Atlantic from David French who said that, you know, the, the Republican Party is changing. It's no longer that party of individualism and free speech and so on and so forth with some of the bills that's going on. And one of the things that I've said is based on the context of the situations of the day and, and based on your ability to, to exact and to extend power, so on and so forth. But here you are saying that and you're speaking to the issue. You, you believe that the, issue, the earned income credit was an which is something that Reagan would be, would, would, it's a social policy that somebody like Reagan would have um, motive. And it's not necessarily so. So although you are Republican, you also um, promote certain ideals. And you said something, and you said something about being poor, your experience of being poor. And um, does that affect some of your policies, some of your ideas? You're, you seem very interdisciplinary because I was looking and, I'm, uh, and I said to myself, you said on your website, you said you were born into a working class family, working class family, which is very that you are trying to connect with individuals as a way to promote other initiatives. But you said, I want to talk only on the issue of you we were born into a working class family and you said you were poor. And I, I was going to ask you a question earlier and I didn't get a chance to ask you the question. I said, here you are, Mexican American. After college, you had $325,000 in debt. At, at 44, you are able to have a net worth of over, I, I looked it up, of over 20 million and a successful businessman. How are you able to accomplish this feat? And it's quite remarkable. Yeah, um, it's, it's a lot of that. I used to say, I used to downplay it out of modesty and say that, you know, I've been lucky a lot. I still do think that I was lucky. I think there were a lot of times growing up um, I could have ended up arrested. I could have ended up in jail. Um, you know, just that—that's the the, uh, uh, I guess, the side effect of, of growing up in in uh, you know the poor neighborhoods. So I, I would clarify that we were born into a poor family. Yes, through my father's hard work, you know, twenty years in the army, um, and then after that, uh, working for you know, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, and then having you know two retirement pensions. Uh, you know, we were able to live more of a, a working class standard. Uh, but all of my family, all of them, um, have a very, we come from a poverty background. There's no yeah. question. And so I know the struggles, I know the the hurdles that are faced. Um, I, I know that sometimes you you can't pick and choose who your friends are, you know? I didn't yeah. choose who I lived next door to. Um, right. And some of the troublemakers that, that uh, you know, I befriended growing up, and uh, and thankfully, you know, there were times where I wasn't with them, where they did something, uh, you know, foolish, and ended up in jail. And you know, to this day, I'm thinking, wow, if I had decided to go with them that day, I my whole life would have possibly been derailed. And how many other people out there are like me that could have had a successful company that that you know could be running for office, but made one mistake growing up. And now the whole life is is you know derailed as a result of it, and so um, yeah, it's it's pretty scary thinking about things like that. But uh, you know, as far as what I did, I just uh, I kept getting student loans, I kept studying, I kept getting more degrees, and I kept just hoping that <laughs> this is all going to pay off. Yes, yes, yes. And I know that you know, unfortunately and sadly, 
a lot of people have done the exact same thing as me and not been as lucky, uh, yes. have not been as fortunate. And that's the reason that I'm not quick to say, like most people would, like, oh, well, I did it. You know, you can do it too. Um, I feel like that's a, that's a myth that the system creates, you know, to, to basically use somebody like me as a poster boy to say that, you know, oh, look, you know, he did it through hard work and he was able to pay off all his loans in four years. Like, let's, let's be honest. Like, that's one in a million, if not one in a billion uh, chance that that would happen. And it happened to me. And, yeah. uh, and again, I'm not going to pretend that, that that is something that's easily replicable. Right. So, you know, that being said, you know, that's why I want to look back at some of the hurdles that people face and try to find ways to correct it. You know, one yeah. solution idea that I had was to give a dollar for dollar tax credit uh, for all the principal paid back on student yeah. loans, not just the interest. And uh, let's be honest, the, the student loan interest deduction is crap. You know, it's, it's a small, it reduces your, your tax bill by a few hundred bucks. What the hell is that? Right. Um, and so I, I would say dollar for dollar, uh, not only interest, but also the principal amount. So the way I view it is tax-free until debt-free. So as long as you're paying back your student loans, you shouldn't be paying into the tax system yet. And I feel like that would incentivize people to be like, you know, okay, cool. You know, I can pay off my, my student loans now instead of paying my $5,000 tax bill. Um, yeah. And I feel like that's also a way of, it's it's a, it would incentivize people to go out there and start a business and, and try to make it work and at least be alleviated from these burdensome monthly payments. Like when yeah. Obama passed the income-based repayment plan, that was a godsend for me. Um, it was. You know, I was. I was able to get my, my bills down practically nothing. And I feel like that's what actually helped me start my business. If I had been crippled with these monthly payments, I would have yeah. never started a cash flow company, which you became a very successful international tax law firm. And I would have never been able to invent AI tax, which, uh, well, interestingly, it was just valued uh, last week at 180 million. So, right. Uh, and I wanted to tell, and I wanted to ask you some questions about AI tax because you're you're a successful business, and you and you said it was just valued at how much? 180 million. Yeah, trust me, that floored me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, and um, what is AI tax? What's that business about? Uh, so, I had been working on this for the last two years here at the office. We called it the Manhattan Project because it was really secret. We didn't talk about it with anybody. And uh, unfortunately, as a result of being very secretive, a lot of people thought that we were doing something nefarious. Um, but in November of 2021, last year, I ended up getting awarded a 12 in 1 patent. So, it's a patent covering 12 concepts from the US Patent and Trademark Office, and it covers artificial intelligence in the use of tax planning, tax legal defense, and tax preparation. So basically, it's like TurboTax on steroids. Um, you know, it's going to help you through every aspect of your tax return. If you have questions about, oh, do I qualify for this deduction? It'll actually thoroughly vet you for any particular legal position. If you have a question about, like right now when you do your taxes, for example, it says, oh, list your dependents. But what if you have a question like, well, you know, I took care of my niece or my nephew for a few months, like right. how to claim that person, you know? Uh, unfortunately, right now you're at the mercy of Google, right? You have to do a bunch of Google searches and you're there for like two hours and then you're stressed, yes. right or not? Because you'll find 10 different answers to the same question online. Um, our software will actually guide you through a Q&A process that gives you a legal conclusion as to whether you can claim that person. And okay. so that's kind of like a, you know, very uh, opening part of the software, but it goes more yes. So uh, it'll even bet you for like treaty positions and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, basically it grabbed all the knowledge that I got 
in the yes. LLM program at Georgetown and uh, put it into software code. So. Oh, nice, nice. So not only were you uh, studying um, the theory and the principles, the concepts of law, and what kind of attorney are you? Tax attorney? Uh, international tax, yeah. International tax, but you, but because you are very, you're young, you use the technology at your disposal. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, the, my next question, I looked at um, some of your plans and some of your proposals, and uh, and I, as I said, I couldn't, I, as I was reading your platform, I couldn't tell if you were a Democrat or Republican. And I said, I deliberately am not going to ask if you're a Republican or Democrat, because to be honest, that is not important right now. And I actually did spoke with several individuals who are aware that I'm interviewing you. One young man was asking, oh, is he Republican or Democrat? You know, that's not important, man. You have to listen to, it, to, to the platform and what you're promoting. One of the things you, recently there's something about student loan, uh, where Biden is saying that um, he's considering uh, canceling or forgiving student loan debt, and there are Republicans, such as few, who are saying that, no, uh, individuals and people, the, the economy is recovering now, but, but of course, I don't know if that is true if the economy is recovering because um, econo the economy is suggesting it indicated that we're about to go into a recession. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but yet he's saying that um, we should continue to be primarily should continue to be a, be a the burden of um, uh, taxpayers should be a the burden of these students. But I'm not, and, but I you released a statement saying I work my ass off, it off. But I'm no man. You just alluded to that and um, and you said. Something about debt enslavement, and um, what was it that you said? Something I think I made a note of it. Oh, that, I mean, uh, exactly. Yeah, how a lot of people in my in my prior position feel, you know, it's uh, when when you're struggling month by month trying to earn enough to pay off your your student loan, uh, yeah. it, it it does feel like debt enslavement, and. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of people will immediately, you know, on my side of the aisle, will immediately say, well, it's their choice. You know, they went to college and it's kind of like, you know, it, it's it's a bit, it's a bit insensitive to just like dismiss fellow Americans right away. Uh, you know, colleges don't prepare you. If you, if you had parents like mine that didn't go to college, you know, you don't have anybody advising you going in. Um, and, and, you know, they're like, oh, well, that's why at the college they have these advisors. Anybody that actually went to college is going to laugh at that suggestion right away, right? Because right, you try right. to you try to meet with these advisors, and they literally have a boilerplate statement that they just read every school, and you're just kind of like, okay, thanks, that didn't really help anything. Um, they don't give enough information on careers going into it. They don't tell you what the salary expectation in this particular field is. Uh, they don't help you get a job afterwards. Some do, some do, yes. but not not all of them, and especially not the ones. Um, you know, in question, you know, that were very predatory, um, right. you know, where it was just literally a degree, a degree mill. And a degree mill, you know, for, for those that don't know, is an institution that basically just promises that if you sign up and pay the tuition, you're going to get your degree credit. And then your degree is going to open up all these doors to all these opportunities. Um, but you don't realize that, you know, in the real world, people already know that university is just a degree mill. So they don't really give that degree any real weight. And so yeah. you end up spending all this money to get this Degree, and then you know it turns out that it's not really worth the paper it's printed on. Um, right. And in the business world, any contract where anybody fraudulently induces you into a contract is a voidable contract. That's like contract 101. You know, you can't fraudulently induce and deceive people into a contract. Yet that's exactly what happened to a lot of these students. And yeah. so it's not a question of like, oh, should we just like 
uh, embrace a liberal policy of canceling student debt. It's no, should we enforce basic contract law, which is that they were fraudulently induced into getting this degree that's practically worthless. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> Democrats aren't the best at messaging sometimes. And, and I think it's because they're trying to express what the motivation is from their heart. And right. uh, and Republicans, I, I see a lot of times are very motivated out of logic. It's just like, well, to me, that's yes. not logical. You chose this product and therefore you have to pay for this product. Uh, and I wish that Democrats would approach situations from more of a very legal and, and analytical and, and logical standpoint. Like we understand that everybody's motivated out of their heart, but I think if they messaged it better, they would be able to reach people on the other side. Um, and uh, and again, I, I think there's been there've been presidents like that on both sides. Clinton was really good at that, and that's why he got reelected twice. Uh, I think so was Obama. Um, and uh, you know, on the right, Reagan. You know, that's why there was Reagan Democrats. You know, Reagan always was able to explain that look, conservative policy isn't always just about analytics, data, and logic. Like we have a part too. And he was always trying to find that middle ground. You know, and that's right. why he found that middle ground, like with our income tax credit. You know, expansion of various social programs. Um, and he saw it as like, hey, this kind of benefits Wall Street, right? You know, because it's going to subsidize some of the low wages paid by Walmart uh, yes. you know, and, and all these companies. And so it even got Walmart, I mean, even got uh, Wall Street support, you know, for a lot of these policies because he was able to find that middle ground. And I really think that, uh, you know, that's what this country is, is missing again. You know, is, is somebody that can be that, that voice of bipartisanship to try to bring both sides together and actually get things done. Because if not, we're always going to be in the stalemate if if we keep electing these these extreme ideologues. You know, at the end yes. of the day, everything, of course, is going to have a little bit of a conservative twist. I'm trying to reduce the federal deficit, pay down the you know the uh, uh, our enormous freaking debt, and uh, but yeah, yeah. And, well, and you know, and I saw that you that's part you said that uh, you said you 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 trying to reduce the federal deficit, but at the same and you also believe that government have a responsibility to improve social services and um, how can we um, do both? How can we, how can we improve social services but at the same time? Yeah, and I'm glad you asked that. I'm really glad you asked that because yes. when people saw my firm taking off, uh, it started turning heads. They were wondering, how is this? Because I graduated in 2013 uh, and within three, four years, uh, my firm was uh, netting over a million dollars a year. And that, that turned heads real fast, uh, real, real fast. Um, within a few years, I was interviewing people from Georgetown. I had just graduated a few years prior. And it, it's very, I was able to do this because I fully leveraged technology. At the end yes. of the day, that's all it was. I, I digitized marketing, whereas everybody before international tax returns would fly to countries put on, you know, these presentations at, at the Ritz-Carlton or, or the Hilton um, and spend, have all this overhead. And to me, I always was trying to find a way how to do things on the lean, um, how to do things more efficiently, more effectively. And yeah. I was able to spend less and generate more. And that was not the, uh, the prevailing wisdom at the time. The prevailing wisdom yeah. at the time was you have to spend more to make more. And uh, I completely flipped that around and yes. I was able to keep overhead and my margins so high um, that I got a lot of offers from big firms like Baker McKinsey, Baker Hostetler, Holland Knight, 
they wanted to onboard me as a partner yes. to try to find out what are you doing and how are you doing it. Um, and of course, when they couldn't figure it out, they were just like, oh, yes, we're doing something various. <laughs> it's just like you know, <laughs> Google ads, it's called Facebook yes. ads. Um, yes. But I brought it up one time at a conference uh, by this attorney who I knew was kind of following me, kind of curious as to how my firm was growing so fast. And he asked me how, how I spend my marketing money. And I said, uh, I said, well, a good chunk of it is actually on Facebook. And his response, never gonna forget his response. He was like, the place where my kids hang out? And I was just like, you know what? It's that attitude of yes. not generating any revenue. Um, yes. And it's because what a lot of people didn't know and what was unfortunately weaponized by uh, Trump in 2016 was the, the power of what's called micro-targeting on social media. I don't want to get too far off track, but yes. it was those types of techniques of keeping overhead down, but yes. still maximizing by, by focusing on, on efficiency. Uh, and I realized you can bring this to the federal government. You can bring yes. social programs. Um, one of the things that AI, the AI tax corporation that, that we're about to go public with uh, is gonna do is we're, we wanna do what Elon Musk did for NASA, we wanna do for the US Department of Treasury. Right. We actually wanna come into the US Department of Treasury, start digitizing a lot of the offices, uh, in particular the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, yes. We wanna be able to digitize collections, um, uh, client correspondence, uh, uh, a lot of there's a lot of aspects that can be digitized yes and the the fact that i was able to build a company that has now you know has value of 180 million dollars is proof that i know what yes. i do i know how to actually get this done and the same can be done with social programs again yes. um it, it's just that we keep on using the old school approach to social programs and uh yes. and it's very costly it's very inefficient and that's why people get very frustrated with government services, right? You know, they always equate government bureaucrats with sloth, you know, that's just there. Yes, I definitely. With, with <laughs> definitely. And, uh, and it's because it, it is a very accurate uh, sentiment, you know? Um, but but yeah, that, that's the approach that I would bring, which is just bringing a lot of our social programs, a lot of our departments and agencies into the 21st century, uh, reducing that overhead and making it much more Oh, this is this is powerful. Thank you so much for that. And um, so you are bringing real life issues. You're bringing what you have learned as an entrepreneur, as a successful businessman, and applying it to to government as a way to um, as a way to make create change. And of course, you talk about the, the digital issue. There are questions I can ask you about digitizing stuff. There are fears about the digital world in terms of privacy and security. And oh yeah, yeah. There's definitely those. You know, and I know I'm um, president. I'm former president Obama. He's right now. Um, talking about um, looking at how we can regulate um, communication and information. And uh, I have oftentimes said that social media is one of the greatest victories for movements and people because what it does, it decentralizes information or control and communication is to make popular, but with the monopoly. So um, in one end, we want to regulate information, but at the other end, we have to be careful because regulating information, there are various systems around it. Yeah, I mean, we have to be careful, and that's something that we we are very cognizant of as well. Um, you know, there's a, a code provision, 6103 of the Internal Revenue Code, which you know mandates um, you know taxpayer privacy, yeah. and uh, and yeah, it's it's very it's very difficult. Um, you know, one thing that I think that we really need is uh, you know we have Air Force, we have Army. Uh, we have Marines, now we have Space Force. Uh, yes. I think we need a digital force. And I, I think it needs to be its own branch of government. 
you know, and unfortunately, uh, instead, what we've done is we've created these sub agencies with or sub departments within each agency, right? So the CIA has their their digital command, uh, NSA, NRO, you know, they all have their digital command. So does the Army, Air Force, Navy. Um, but the problem is that it, it it's such a new it's it's like a platform for potential warfare now, right? Like they even talk about cyber warfare. And so yeah. it's kind of like, you know, the Air Force is in charge of the air, Navy's in charge of the water, Army's yeah. in charge of the land. And uh, the, but we need, we do need a cyber force and it needs to be right. in charge of the digital, digital space. And that yeah. way you get, you get all these sub departments from all these various agencies, whether it's CIA, um, DIA, yeah. even DEA, all, all of them, the DEA has a really good cyber force. Um, put them all together, yeah. and now you've got the best and brightest in mind, all finally under one roof working together, um, yeah. and that's what's very difficult to accomplish. It's the same reason why they realized that even space was becoming its its own, almost like battlefield, right? And that's why they had to bifurcate now, you know, the air from zero gravity space, you know, and that's right. why we decided to spin off and create Space Force, which I think was actually a really smart move. Um, yeah. but, I, I think the the real one that's that's current now and present is the digital space, and uh, yeah. and unfortunately that one is uh, is is very fractured. And uh, you know I'm, I think um, I I think I published an article some time ago talking about the next threat to the world, the next war is on the digital front, and uh, because uh, look what's happening with Russia and with China and so on, and um, the issue of privacy information, and I talked about. The the information sharing between country and the, and the wars between countries can create escalate even further privacy issues. I think privacy issues are a major issue, and um, I, I think um, there's not much policy around security um, or privacy. I personally speaking, I've had tremendous issues with um, digital security and privacy and data leaks. So that is something I believe that um, I guess as as people we need to as leaders. We need we need to start exploring uh, because you have access to to the digital again that can create problems. Oh yeah, yeah, and and just so so I'm uh, really clear. One thing I, I agree with. Well, I don't even say agree with the libertarians because I haven't heard them say this. Um, so it has to do with the Fourth Amendment. Um, yes. When the Fourteenth Amendment was passed, for example, uh, you know, in the 1860s, it didn't really have any teeth to it until yes. uh, almost 50 years later. When they decided, yeah. almost 100 years ago, they decided to expand the 14th Amendment to private actors. Before, it was only seen as um, applying to the government, kind of like freedom of speech, right? Like yes. Congress shall pass no law abridging, you know, the freedom of speech. Uh, it, or uh, you know, I can't remember the, the precise wording, but you get the point. It, it, it limits government involvement, not private involvement, right? So that's yes. why. You know, when big tech companies uh, engage in censorship, it doesn't violate the First Amendment. But one of the things that I have advocated for is we need to extend the Fourth Amendment to private companies. Because unfortunately, this loophole has been exploited by our own intelligence community. And what they've done is they've effectively subcontracted a lot of digital espionage to private companies then when they violate the Fourth Amendment, they're like, oh, well, you know, that was them. You know, it wasn't right. us. Yeah, they're, they're yes, really yes. private contractors. And um, and I think that's that's very unfortunate and it needs to be rendered. And that yes. makes me no friend of the intelligence community. Um, but uh, but it, I need to call it as I see it. And uh, and it's a problem that's being grossly abused. 
Uh, yes. and, uh, and I could go on a long time on that one. But, uh, yes. but of course, another one where a lot of people get sensitive is the First Amendment. Um, I don't pick and choose, uh, you know, which amendments I like. And I do think that the First Amendment, it's about time that it extends to private companies as well. Yes. yes. If, they're, if they are deemed to be engaged in providing a public domain and a public forum, mm-hmm. I believe that it should. Now, of course, then that sounds like I'm defending Trump, the fact that he's banned from a lot of these programs. Uh, yes. Unfortunately, you know, he would benefit from something like this. Uh, right. Again, I, I think, I never think about the current situation. I think, what if the tables are reversed? Right. Uh, you know, and you always have to think things in that way. And yes. uh, and again, that's that's where our founding fathers were always focused on, is, you know, what happens if, uh, you know, the other side gets this or, you know, so, yes. so you get the point. But yeah, I, I really think that the Fourth Amendment should be extended to private actors, and uh, and that would include a lot of these data companies. So if they violate your privacy rights, you would have grounds to then sue them in the federal court. This is quite interesting. There's, you know, there I have many similar questions to ask you about to really question people are asking about issues of subscription. The issue, the fact that we are now companies are now have, are now requiring subscriptions. People don't purchase products anymore and pay a one-time fee. Now you rent. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and people talk about how that creates more profit in a sense. Because now you have to shell out more money so that affects incomes over time. And then of course, there are people doing research that looks at the correlation between what customers in society are now requiring to pay. Because now you're not paying a one-time fee, you now you're paying fees, a subscription. And, and um, I wanted to find out what are the views of our political leaders since they are doing some of the questions people were asking about many things that are now subscription-based that's now creating more poverty debt. And in a sense, that creates strategy that provides more wealth for some people, but it creates more income disparities and more lack of people in society. Yeah. I thought about the issue of subscription and fee for service and how that is, how that is changed the way in which how we look at customers and how we pay for products and stuff, how is that changing in society and how, and how that creates problems for consumers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and unfortunately, I, I feel a lot of that was initially most motivated by tax policy. Um, yes. Because if you sell a CD-ROM at Best Buy for Microsoft Word, um, yes. now that's US-based income. But if you sublicense the technology out to the Netherlands, and then yes. um, that Dutch holding company sublicenses a subscription fee out, um, you know, so like a temporary license, then yes. uh, Dutch source income, even though it's a U.S. customer. And so that was initially, it was actually tax policy that drove that that new design. But okay. then companies were realizing they were making more money out of it, right? Right. Not, not just a hundred dollar, quick hundred bucks. You know, it's yes. it's less. It's only fifteen a month. But it's 15 months for life, you know, right, so you've got customers for life, pretty much. Um, you know, unfortunately, this is one of the byproducts of uh, uh, free market capitalism. And I think that somebody needs to step in and provide an alternative. But how do you do that if the yes. government is not enforcing antitrust legislation? So uh, antitrust legislation, for those that don't know, uh, I, I can go into long history why they would use the word trust, but it's basically monopolies, right? Yeah. Uh, Monopolies are illegal because you're using your power to effectively uh, and unlawfully neutralize competition. And so it does, it's, it's anti-capitalism when you think about it. It doesn't create competition because the idea of, comp- of capitalism is that competition 
um, allows the best to prevail, right? So right. You put a bunch of burger joints, you know, in a mall, you know, uh, 12 months later, most of them will go bankrupt and go under, right? Because the one who makes the best meals and has the best customer service is going to be the one that prevails. And that's the theory behind capitalism. Monopolies, on the other hand, is the uh, one restaurant sabotaging all the others so that they go yeah. under. And that way you're forced to buy their product regardless of whether it's good customer service or not. Think yeah. of at and in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, uh, but but what's happening right now is that they're not enforcing uh, this these uh, anti-monopoly laws. Why? Because these monopolies got even smarter. Uh, they stopped not only neutralizing their competition, but neutralizing political opposition. And they engaged in lawful bribery through our lobbying system uh, yes. to effectively, again, uh, manipulate our, our democratic processes to further, you know, entrench themselves, you know, as, as the dominant force within a particular industry. And, uh, and again, this is not going to make me any friends, <laughs> you know, in, yes. in the corporate community and the ones that know that they're engaging in this, they can be like, okay, right. much about how we operate. But, uh, but, but that is the truth, exactly how they operate. And so it's, it's a multifaceted approach. We need to go after the lobbying laws. Um, and, and the way that lobbying is done, it's, it's been corrupted and eroded over time to where basically now it's just legalized bribery. That's all it is. That's all it is. And that's why when I ran my congressional campaign and I self-funded with like 500,000 of my own money, I didn't take a single dollar because I didn't want that, that type of undue influence. Because no matter what any politician says, if somebody is, if a group of people and they all work for one company and they're all giving you 25,000 and they help you raise $500,000. If they're basically bankrolling your entire political campaign, you can say you are independent as much as you want, but at the end of the day, if they, if they tell you to do something, you're gonna do it. And, you know, I feel like a lot of politicians just try to limit their corruption, right? Like, well, yeah. only only for these groups of people, and it's because I kind of agree with them on most of the things. Um, and, and it, it, you're effectively like negotiating your soul, right? Yes, <laughs> and, yes. Uh, and, and unfortunately, we, we need changes to the law of so that, that needs to be more tightly regulated. It's been way too loose and watered down, um, you know, since the times of, of Kennedy when I feel like it was uh, a little bit better. But uh, that, you know, coupled with, uh, you know, our tax policy, which actually drove, like I said, this this initial uh, subscription-based model. and. Uh, and, and then the enforcement of antitrust legislation. So attacking these monopolies, breaking them up to allow new competitors to come into the market. I think all those three things combined would would be the way to address that particular problem. Thank you. And um, I have another question for you um, as we get ready to, not too long from now, I have a lot, ton load of other questions, but I was, um, I, th- I, I interviewed uh, one of my professors, Dr. Martin Oppenheimer, one of the mentors in my life. And of course, one of the questions I'm going to ask before we end is, who is your greatest, your greatest inspiration in your life? Where do you draw inspiration? And I know I read where you said Americans, and we can explore that. But beyond that, I want to know, I want to go deeper. But before that, there is something in music about young people and what they're doing. And you said some time ago, two days ago, stop looking to the government for help with income disparity and the wage gap. Get off your, get off your whatever, and um, and you and they're Stop asking and start demanding. Fight for it. And I know at Amazon, young people are out there demonstrating, and they get young. And then over the weekend, young people organized that stop the violence march and so on and so forth. So for, you are here. You you you, are, you said so. This was quite profound, and I I, saw, I thought it was quite powerful. 
and you said that one of the ways we can create change is to stop asking for it to unionize. And I think um, you, I study unions as well as Latin micro-community organization. Unions are in decline in the U.S. and they're still weak. But um, what is your proposal in terms of in terms of uh, this issue of unions? Yeah, I mean, again, this is to me, this is free market capitalism. And again, uh, with a lot of capitalists, you know, when we bring up, uh, whenever I bring up unions, they're always just like, oh, you know, well, we don't like that, you know? Yes, yes. <laughs> so yes, so yes. you like individual responsibility and you like right. individual freedoms, but not mm-hmm. when those freedoms are uh, an organized effort to demand higher wages and better benefits. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, again, it's, it's a little bit of that uh, you know, political hypocrisy. But, uh, but yeah, absolutely. You know, this is free market capitalism, it's free market yes. contract. And just like, uh, you know, I as a business owner, I'm free to, you know, engage in business. Um, yeah. My employees are free to organize if they feel that I'm mistreating them uh, or not paying them properly. Okay. All my employees get paid uh, very, very well and uh, and have very, very generous health benefits as well. Um, I do that because okay. of my background, because I'm a union. Yes. And I want to make sure that, you know, uh, I take care of them. They're healthy and happy. Uh, they're going to be healthy and happy making this company more money. Um, yes. And we're all going to, you know, benefit, uh, you know, together as a result of it. So, uh, that being said, I absolutely support unions. I, I think that, you know, whenever I, I'm against centralization of power in politics, whether it's in the con- whether whether it's wealth, um, whether it's the income disparity. I don't like it whenever things are one-sided. I like things to be balanced. Uh, that's right. really what what I'm about. Um, and so when I see that in gross imbalance, you know, uh, with companies that are make, posting billions and billions in profit, and yet their employees are, are going home and, and checking on their, you know, uh, housing benefits and checking on their uh, SNAP food benefits. Uh, to me, that that's, that's upsetting. Um, and it's because these companies can afford to pay living wages. Yeah. Yet they, and, and they have economists, you know, and, and their financial office that actually take this into account. Well, you know, if we pay them at this level, they'll be eligible for these benefits. And so, that, so their salary is actually up here. And what you're actually saying is we can effectively shift this onto the government's credit card, right? The national right. just keep going higher and higher. We've already just like become numb to it. Um, and and I disagree with that. I disagree with that wholly. I, I think this burden needs to go where it belongs, which is you have a duty, you have a responsibility toward your talent, towards your team, you know, towards your employees. Right. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I, I think it's, it's a result of the, the, uh, the 80s, you know, where things were just, uh, you know, very disconnected. For example, most people, this is a concept that, that most people don't even really think about, but it's small things like this, this that matter. Yeah. What do we call the department that's in charge of managing all of the talent and all of your team members? We call it human resources. Right. Think about, what that, think about that term for a second. A human resource. What is a resource? A resource is something that you extract, you expend, and then yeah. there's something that's left over, the byproduct, and you just discard it. Like, go yeah. um, And what are me and you, you know? Yeah, we're human beings, but you know, we're, we're people. We're, we're family, we're team members, we're, we're right. husbands, fathers, brothers. Um, but calling it, calling a person a human is as disconnected as right. it is. Yes. And so yes. referring to, to your people as human resources, you know, is, is just about as, as uh, gross as it can get when you think about it but yeah uh, we, we've just come to to accept that term 
But that's why even here we refuse to call it human resources. You know, we call it yes, talent, yes, yes. talent management department. You know, it's just like at the end of the day, that's what we're doing. You know, we're yes. talent. We're helping develop them. We're treating them like family. Um, and again, I think it starts with with terminology, and then yes. from there we can start changing. You know, the way that we do business and, and conduct business. Yes. Okay. And and uh, two more questions as we get to wrap up. But uh, you said that um, you said some time ago that. Um, I'm probably the only Republican who's been calling for long-term investments in solar, wind, and hydroelectric energy for years. And you went on to say, everyone wants energy independence. They just don't want liberal green energy companies to get rich accomplishing. But the question is, you believe that we can, and I know, and I, you know, you all, you said you're a balanced person and like that. Because some, some time before you talked about the fact that you want, you still want to look at oil oil drilling and explore so that, in the, um, so that we can become more independent, um, energy independent. So what are your views in terms of how do we, at the same time, what are your views in terms of uh, views on the, the planet and um, um, the ozone layer and, uh, and the position and, and at the same time developing in, energy independence while exploring solar energy and so on. And, uh, and many, if this is some of these things are new concepts, and you're a young American, you're a young American, so in a way, you get an opportunity to lead the charge and to educate people some more about that. But, and so I would like to hear your opinion on this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, so, you know, unfortunately, the Republican Party used to be known as, as the party of environmentalism. Um, yes. Under Teddy Roosevelt, he was a big environmentalist. He's one that, that really advocated for the expansion of the national parks system in the United States. And, uh, you know, somewhere along the way, I feel like the Republican Party just uh, got derailed, you know, and yes. they equated environmentalism with, uh, you know, tree hugging. And uh, and it's just kind of like, <laughs> look, it's, it's about, you know, when I, when I talk to my fellow Republicans about this, I, I like to do the Christian name, which is that, yes. uh, you know, we are stewards of God's earth. That's yes. at the end of the day. Like, yes, we're Republican, we're Democrats, we're this, we're that. Um, but we also have a duty towards God, a duty towards preserving this earth and yes. all of its majestic beauty. I've seen a lot of it and it's gorgeous and I don't want to see it ruined. Um, and even if there's a 1% chance that humans could be contributing to this, uh, why not? You know. And also let's look at it from a national security standpoint. Do we really want to stay reliant on Saudi oil? You know, do we, do we really want that? Um, and so there, and, and of course people like it, uh, will say like, oh, well, there's a difference between oil and coal, right? You know, coal is for the electricity, oil is for gasoline. But it's like, yeah, but if we increase the domestic production of the grid, yeah. like, for example, I'll give you a quick example. If everybody tomorrow bought a Tesla and started driving a Tesla tomorrow, we'd have blackouts yeah. nationwide. Why? Because the grid can't support it because it doesn't, it doesn't create that much electricity yet. We'd have to like pump out more coal. And so the only way to really sustain putting all these vehicles on the grid is to start expanding the grid and empowering the grid with more, infusing it with more energy. And so that is gonna require uh, more wind turbines, you know? And, and, and now it's just gotten ridiculous, right? Like now now most people uh, that are anti-green energy, uh, which I hate calling it green energy, it's just infinite sources of energy. And uh, with these free infinite sources of energy, right? That God gave us, it's the wind, it's the sun, it's the water. Um, God's basically like, I gave you guys this free energy and you're, yes. you're not using it without wrong with you. <laughs> um, and so it's like, we need to be investing in this infrastructure. You know, it's, it, to me, it's like, it's God's infrastructure. Let's invest in this, let's expand it. 
And if we had this, we'd be able to shift more vehicles onto the grid, and that means less oil. We wouldn't need as much oil. And that would again decrease our reliance on these foreign imports of oil. And that goes towards energy independence. But what people don't understand is that energy independence isn't some finish line, right? Like、yeah. we accomplished it for a few months、uh, under Obama. We accomplished it for a few months under Trump.、Uh, but something always happens. Why? Because you think the Saudis are fools? They know what we're trying to do, and they're always、yeah. going to try to engineer some sort of international crisis or issue or, or market manipulation in order to、uh, frustrate our ability to become independent. You know,、yeah. think of a drug dealer. You know, like if you see、mm-hmm. a person trying to go clean, you're going to try to find a way to to make them, you know, reliant on your product, just like the subscription service. You know,、yeah. they they see that you know there might be new market entrants that are going to offer flat fees again. They'll do everything、yeah. in their monopolistic power to frustrate that and to derail those plans. So、yeah. that being said,、um, you know, energy independence is something that is is not just like a one-time accomplishment. It's something that we need to accomplish and then sustain, because there are going to be Market participants out there, i.e., Saudi Arabia, <laughs> they're going to do everything in their power to try to frustrate that and try to prevent that from happening. And so,、uh, when we view it as a national security issue, I think that would get more conservatives on board.、Um, but like I said, what I've generally found is that、uh, they don't want to support this because a lot of the people leading these companies tend to lean、uh, left. And so,、yes. like, oh no,、yes. now we're just, we're just making a new generation of. Liberal billionaires and and they don't want to be part of that and it's just kind of like okay, it's、yeah. frustrating. <laughs> it is frustrating and that's part of the suspicion. And、uh, I have. Fo- that was the first hour. Of the interview with、uh, John Anthony Castro, the first hour of the interview, and the, actually the interview was two hours and four minutes long. And the first hour of the interview, we learned that he was born into a working family, a working class family, a military family、um, in 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 Germany. He spent、uh, the first few years of his formative life in Germany, and he came back to the U.S. And、um, we learned. We learned that um, um, one of the things that was most powerful that we learned about it was quite powerful interview, quite powerful. We learned something that was very important that、uh, as on the issue of student loan, on the issue of student loan, which is a major issue in America right now, which is something that is being considered. And、um, we learned that student loan. He said that student loan interest deduction is crap, according to John Anthony Castro. He says that student loan interest deduction is crap. As long as you are paying student loan, you shouldn't pay taxes. As long as you are paying student loan, you shouldn't pay ta- pay back taxes.、Um, the second thing we learned about、uh, Mr. John Castro, we learned that、um, you know he he was here is a a a a, a gentleman that was born and he's only thirty eight years old and he was born into a working class family and we we learned that when he was finished. When he was when he was finished with college, he had a, over three hundred twenty five thousand dollars in debt. Yet today he is valued at twenty million dollars, and his company, his company AI Tax, which is an artificial intelligence company in terms of tax planning, is valued at a hundred and one hundred and eighty million dollars. And he's hoping to take what he's learned, what he's learned, 
take it into politics as well. Um, one of the things that he talked about, some, he, he shared some concerns about Democrats and Republicans. He said that the problem with our politicians today is some of the problems is messaging. He said dem, the, uh, oftentimes Democrats um, is so speak from the heart or is associated with the heart, but, but not logic. They're not logical or they're not legal. However, the Republicans now on the other set, on the uh, in one sense, he says, they are seen to be too legal and too logical, but without the heart. So what he talks about, according to John Castro, John Castro said he talks about striking a balance between between uh, or, or, or or between logic and heart, between legalism and the heart. He talks about that, and he says, what's wrong with America today? This he talks about extremism. And the importance for diversity, the importance for balance, the importance to come together. He talks about striking a balance and and the middle ground. And he said that's what's missing, and um, that's what's missing in our politics. That's what's missing in in our economy. He says what we need is for someone to be able to bring everyone together. He also went on to say that um, I asked him. I asked him how do you plan to improve services while being fiscally responsible because on his website he talks about improving services while being fiscally responsible and that is not easy and he says we have to fully leverage technology and that is what what he did with his company and um, he said we have to spend less and generate more and as a young man and you know and that's a beautiful thing about young people the issue about um, technology and their ability to utilize technology we'll be right back after these messages Welcome back to the New Liberal Round podcast. We have John Anthony Castro with us and we will join the interview that ended just about an over an hour ago. And we were just summarizing the first half of the interview. And um, let's continue with this summary before, as we go into the second half. He also, ta- he also talked about, um, um, he talks about the need for taxpayer privacy and he talks about the importance for a digital force as it relates to information privacy and security just as though you have a military and you have various forces in countries that protecting us we also need a digital force and he talked about the fact that the fourth or the, um, the fourth amendment needs to be extended to private companies especially private technology companies so we can sue them in court if they violate our privacy and security, which was quite profound. He also talked about the fact that why he believes that um, um, Trump should not be banned from social media, which is um, which I have oftentimes said people have rich, the beauty. The beautiful thing about social media, if you don't want to see something, you don't have to see it. You can block it if you don't want. OK, that's the beauty about social media. You OK, if you don't want to see a particular tweet or post, you don't you have tremendous amount of control but he talks about that and um and he also talked about the issue of subscriptions and how subscriptions i post to him how subscriptions how requiring customers now to to have subscriptions account instead of a one-time purchase how that is changing the dynamics between customers and suppliers and how it creates more social issues in society we talked about the need for for enforcing antitrust laws. We already have laws in the books. But he talks about enforcement, the enforcement of anti-monopoly laws. We also, he also talked about, he mentioned the fact that, um, uh, he talked about uh, uh, um, the centralization of power. 
and the importance. And he said that unions provide a balance to, and uh, unions, he said, provide a balance and helps to limit power and the centralization and abuse of power. Okay. And he, because for him, he says it's very important. Okay. He's against the centralization of power and he's for balance. And one of the things that he says that it's unions and organizations like these help to provide that balance, helps to limit that kind of centralization and the abuse of power. He talks about, he, he talks about the issue of language and the importance of the human, not, and seeing the human not as resource, but as talent resource but as talent he said he said resources you can discard but talent you, you know you treat talent as family he talks about that he talks about the need for having energy independence um and it was quite interesting as i talked to him about energy independence um and oil drilling because in one end he is for oil drilling and so on and so forth but at one spectrum he's also for um for the need for more for exploring solar energy and hydroelectricity um in fact according to mr castro he said that the gop used to be known as the party of envi environmentalism teddy roosevelt the gop but he said the gop got derailed and equated envi environmentalism with tree hugging and you know as we said but he said earlier that the democrat had a problem democrats have a problem with messaging because, you know, they seem to promote the heart. But what about the legality and the logic of it while the Republicans at the other end and come striking a balance? And we talk about language is important in society. And sometimes people, sometimes language can, can sabotage what you're trying to do. Your, your, your understanding of a particular thing can affect your approach to it and so on and so forth. And here we are that he said that the GOP got derailed and equated it with tree hugging. And maybe, maybe the GOP equated it with tree-hugging because of the messaging again. Here is messaging, very important, okay? And, but he said, but according to him, he said, we care. We, 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 have, to be, we have to be stewards of God's earth. And, um, and he says, um, we have to be wise and smart. There has to be a wise and smart way of transitioning from coal and oil to solar energy while still, while still um, serving as stewards. He says we have to invest in the superstructure, the superstructure. And the more, we, and the more we, we grow the grid, because the superstructure helps to expand the grid and grow the grid. And the more we grow the grid, the more we can do without oil. And he says it's a process. And that is why I'm talking about young people. Young people are at a particular level in terms of their understanding of technology and so on and information and so on and so forth. And he hit it and he hit the nail right on the head. He said, it's not about abandoning. You saw what just happened recently. And Mr. Biden in the U.S. is now going back to oil drilling. Okay. He said, it's a process. Energy independence is not a one-time issue. So, the, so that's the, the summary of the first hour. Now we're about to get into the second half of the interview. And we're going to continue from where we left off. Here is the interview, the second hour with John Anthony Castro. Welcome back to the Neoliberal Round interview with John Anthony Castro. Uh, this section, we will continue. We continued the discussions. We continued to interview him, and it was quite revealing. But we, all, what we did was to also, we put together um, uh, so, uh, some recordings of individuals who had posed questions to him. So you will hear those recordings, and then Mister Mister Castro will answer 
the questions that I pose that he that several young people and several people pose to him. Wow. You have any questions for him? Oh. Because he's a young man in his forties, I think, and uh, and he has dreamed of becoming a president. Uh -huh. Is that anybody can become can aspire to realize your dream? You want right. to be a, a big musician? Right. You want to be the president? Right. You know what I mean? And he's has got to the level now where he's gonna be trying to be the president. Right. Any questions for him? Um. I guess what steps are you taking to move us forward as a society? You know, what are you doing for the positivity of the people? All right. What are you doing for the positivity of the people to move society forward? Thank you so much. Thank you. He will hear it. He listen to the podcast. Here is Mr. Castro's response to Zion. So sorry, I, I had a, an alarm block. Can, can you repeat that so, one last? Yes. She asked. She says, "What what steps are you taking, or will you take, in order to move us forward?" as a society, what are you doing for us or for the positivity of the people? I think it's bringing that bipartisanship back. Okay. I, I think okay. that's it. Um, it we, what, unfortunately, social media uh, and the internet age, I mean, because when you think about it, the internet age is brand new, right? As human yeah. beings, we've just been given this new service that allows all of us to communicate. And yes. what did we do? We all retreated into our echo chambers. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, you know, yes, yes. instead of communicating with each other, we just we did the same thing we were already doing before. Right. Um, yes. In the digital in the uh -huh. digital space, um, and I think that that that's unfortunate. Um, I used to really enjoy shows like Crossfire, where you'd have somebody representing the liberals, somebody representing the conservatives, and yes. they would each hash out their ideas. Um, they try things similar to that now, but you can tell they. If it's a left-wing program, they bring in the most ridiculous right-wing person. And then yes. if it's a right-wing program, they bring in the most ridiculous left-wing person, right? That way it makes the other side look ridiculous. Um, but I'm talking about bringing in intellectuals on both sides and having these, these public forums and these very uh, respectable public debates. Yes. And that way people get educated. People understand where, okay, now I see where the Republicans are coming from on this issue. I still disagree with them, but at least I know that they're not totally ridiculous or they're not motivated yeah. out of, you know, something evil. Uh, I truly believe that everybody, everybody is motivated out of love for this country. We just have, and we all want to get to where we're going, right? Which is a better country, yeah. a better nation. We just have a different, a difference of opinion as to what that is and how to get there. That's the only thing, but we all love this country. Liberals, yeah. far left, they love this country. Uh, Republicans, far right, they love this country. We're, we all love this country. We just, again, we disagree on the means and, and the, the end goal. Uh, but again, and I think it's what I view a really important part of my candidacy is going to be bridging that, uh, that ideological divide, bridging that, uh, those echo chambers. And I know Obama tried that one. Sorry to interrupt you. That was about that form at once. I think I remember some time Obama, when Obama became president. He wanted to bipart lead by by bipartisanship, and he wanted to bring everybody together. But um, the first couple of years, it was very difficult to get anything through, and so on and so forth. Exactly. And, yeah, and so, uh, that, when you're when you're talking with people, the American people in particular, the American electorate, American voters, um, I think that's that was his golden opportunity, and I think he did it extremely well. Obviously, yes, yes. You know? um, But once you have power, you you can't be shy about utilizing it. 
Yes. And I felt like, unfortunately, that that would be my critique of Obama's first two years in office. Yes. Which is that he was given a mandate and he didn't have the... I'm going to take a lot of heat for this. He didn't have the courage to use it. Yes, and yes. I really felt that that was a, a missed opportunity on his part, right? You know, for a lot yeah. of his his plans and his agenda. Um, but, of course, when you saw that Trump got that same effective mandate and they got yes. Yes. Uh, he was uh, not afraid about using it. And that's uh, why a lot of his policies got enacted. Um, and, and he was really to able to, to reshape and reform the federal government. Yes. In a lot of very unique and, uh, and unprecedented ways. Yes. And a lot of people, of course, uh, on the left were extremely upset at that. But yes. one thing I always said is, hey, he was given power. At least he has the courage to use it. And, yes. and he's using it very, very effectively. And so, uh, you know, again, there, there's when you're campaigning, it's, it's about enlightening your fellow Americans bringing everybody together so that they can make a, a wise and informed decision about who they want to lead their nation. Yeah. But after that, when you're given power, it's, it's not election mode anymore. It's, it's time to use that power and, right. and to put your policies and, and what people voted and believed in, it's time to put that into action. Um, you know, so in other words, the campaigning is talk. Once you're in power, it's action. And, yes. uh, and I, I feel like that's unfortunately where some politicians go wrong. They get in power and they want to keep talking. Right. And, like, <laughs> and like the time for talking's over. Like they gave you the power. <laughs> yeah, it's time for action. <laughs> you are a man of action, it seems. And um, and but you know, I know we've been talking for probably an hour, but I have two, and I know we've said an hour. But oh, do you have any more time for? Yeah, yeah, I have time. yeah. Oh, great. So here's, here's another question. What do you believe is the best way to change our community? Well, I guess this is, and you've already alluded to that um, by saying that, you know, Brick Communist, this is Jaden, a young man, um, and he says that he's about 17 years old. He said, what do you believe is the best way to change our community? And another young man, Zachary, says, how would you change around what's going on? Um, every now and then, there's lots of helicopters and sirens, as if we are a surveillance community. This is a young man in Philadelphia. And if you don't, and Philadelphia, many, I mean, in these communities, Chicago, so they're beset by Violence and violence is on the rise, and um, while poverty. The next question uh, will come to us from two young men. Uh, I believe their name were Jaden and Zachary, and then after that, I think the the MLK High School sports team will also have questions. So you will hear those two. You will hear those questions, and then Mister Mister Castro will answer. One of the presidential candidates, what would it be? Um, I'd probably ask, how do you want, or what do you feel like is the best decision to change our community? Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's your name? Uh, Jaden. Jaden, and for you? Zachary. What, 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 what do you want to ask him? Um, I would like to ask him, um, how would you change what's happening around in this community? Because every now and then, you hear sirens just going up and down the street. Yes. Helicopters and everything. All right. Thank you so much. And, you know, and I, that's the young people talking, and you guys have been under... John Anthony Castro. Do you have any questions for him that you'd want me to ask him? Any questions? Yes. Is there a way that we can bring the youth into more of this Oh, say this again? Is there a way we can bring the youth into more of this thing? Because it's very important that the next generation Oh, wow. Is there a way that we can get more young people involved in events like these? Thank you guys so much. And listen to Mr. Castro's response. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, so it's what I had mentioned before about, you know, how yeah. we're becoming a surveillance state. Um, and it's because, uh, you know, uh, the Fourth Amendment is, I mean, as it applies to the government, has already been severely watered down. And then it doesn't yeah. even apply to private actors. So, you know, if you're a government agency, all you have to do is subcontract out, uh, you know, surveillance to, um, you know, a private market participant. And there you go, you completely circumvent the Fourth Amendment. Um, but yes, you know, it, it's, it's unfortunate that we... You know, we have to balance the the need to effectively police communities and keep, you know, families safe. But, you know, also, you know, it, in other words, it, we need to think of new ways of, of policing. Yeah. And, you know, I, unfortunately, I can I can see the police department's efforts here. It's just like, hey, look, we're trying to keep families safe. Right. I grew up in the hood. <laughs> yes, I swear yes. that, like, you know, uh, just before, actually, before I go into this, let me just give a little bit of background on that. Just yes. so that people can know that I can relate. Um, right. You know, when people say, oh, what was it like for you growing up? Uh, growing up for me was Saturday night, uh, playing basketball in the street with my friends, and then having to hit the floor because an AK-47 started sounding off down the street. Yeah. Um, there, was, there was a crack house down at the end of the, uh, my street in Laredo, Texas, on Elm Street. People want to look it up if they don't believe me. Uh, my aunt lived at 818 East Elm Street, Laredo, Texas. That's where I lived. And right down the street was an apartment complex. And um, there were three times where there were drive-by shootings. Uh, so that was my childhood. My childhood was calling the police with active gunfire uh, going off. And then the police showing up 35 minutes later. 35 minutes later. Yeah. Uh, yet now that I live in a very affluent neighborhood, um, I call the police about... I can see a suspicious animal and there'll be a police, you know, there'll be like two police uh, uh, vehicles outside my front door within three to four minutes tops, you know, so like 160 seconds there at my front door. So I know what it's like. I know what it's like. Um, and the difference is I grew up a little bit upset with, with police officers because how I felt that they discriminated in their ability to provide uh, effective policing to poor areas. Yeah. But then in the nineties, you know, as I got older, I started seeing how, uh, there was over policing. Right. And so then the police departments were just like, Oh, well, you know, these poor people are never happy. Right. You know, we under police, they complain, we over police, they complain. Well, again, it's like what I said before, I'm all about balance, moderation, you know? And, um, and fortunately we, we've become an extreme society where we either extreme, we're not going to give you any policing. Um, or we're going to overplace the hell out of you. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, again, yes. we have to find that balance. And, you know, I would want to look more into that particular issue of what's going on in Philadelphia. Yes. Uh, bring it to my attention because I'd want to see how we can strike that balance. But the fact that there are young people, you know, complaining about it would suggest to me that they've, they've gone to the extreme end now, you know, which is overplacing. Or like, uh, you know, how in Chicago, at one point, the police threatened to not provide any policing to the poor yes. like, Oh, you're protesting against We're not going to provide right. it. Okay. Yes. Uh, I understand their frustration. I get it. Uh, from the police side and, and from the community side. But again, I think it's because we're failing to to find that that, that balance, that moderation. And so, uh, you know, thank you for bringing that to my attention. I'll want to look a lot more into that. But uh, like I said, I, I think it would likely stem from an overreaction and uh, yes. to over-policing. You know, you talk about balance, and um, my next question is going to be, what are your greatest fears? But how do we find, how do we find a balance? And you're aspiring to be one of the, the leaders of the few organizations. 
And um, how do we find that talent? And I guess that's probably one of your greatest work as a if you were to aspire to become president, you were to become president, how do you find that balance? And what do you, what would you do in order to um, get to that balance? Yeah, I mean, I believe that um, I believe with with the brain and with the wisdom that God gave me, and yes. with all the life circumstances that that He put me in, gave me a very well rounded view of the world. I've been on the far left. I've been yeah. out in the streets marching for living wages and unionizing actual workers. I've been out right. uh, boots on the ground. And now I've been on the other side. I've been yeah. a business owner. I've been in charge of employees and payroll, uh, millions in payroll. And, and having to decide on how to provide health benefits in an affordable way for the business that's sustained. Yeah. You know, so now I got to see the other side, like, you know, oh, wow, this stuff isn't free, you know? Yes, <laughs> Somebody yeah. has to pay for it, you know? And, uh, and 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 finding again that that balance um and so you know unfortunately i, I don't think it's something that uh, that can necessarily be found by anyone other than somebody that has a very well-rounded experience and we need to find that with these well-rounded leaders that can look at both sides and find that common ground it's it's very hard um but again it's it's something that i have found that um i have a knack for i'm, I'm able to sit down with Republicans and get them to quickly see both sides. Again, I'm a Republican. I'm conservative. I'm still going to lean towards my party's policy positions, but I'm going to try to find a way to accomplish these goals in a way that's palatable for liberals. So, for example, again, Reagan. What did Reagan want to do? He wanted to support Wall Street. He wanted to see a big economic boom. And so what did he do? He found a way to subsidize wages for these corporations by putting it on government's credit card. How did he do that? the earned income tax credit, right? It's a very novel way. Now we can look at it in retrospect and say, hey, that's corporate socialism, right? That's corporate handouts. Um, let's try to find a way, like now that we're a healthy economy again, let's try to shift it back to companies. But maybe we're about to enter into a recession, so maybe we should maintain it for a while. Um, but it's it's that type of seeing both sides and fully understanding it that empowers me with the ability to yes. find that middle ground um, and to, to stay away from to- toxic ideology. Again, I still believe in conservative principles. That's the foundation. That's what drives all my policy decisions. But I'll always do it in a way where we can get at least 70, 75% of the public behind it. Um, And again, that that was the artful tactic of Bill Clinton. That was the artful tactic of Ronald Reagan. You know, yes, there's no question Ronald Reagan was a Republican conservative, right? He's like the hero. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. But he was still able to reach out to the other side and get people. And Clinton as well. There's no question he was a Democrat. There's no question he was a liberal. But he was able to reach out to the other side and find ways to get them to buy into the positions. And so, again, that's that's what my candidacy is about. It's it's probably not the right time, you know, because we're we're hyper-politicized. But it has to start somewhere. And it's going to start with my Candidacy. Yeah, I'm gonna. And now, um, one last question. Yes, and I'm um, sorry, sorry to cut you off right there. One, one older gentleman said, um, "Oh, I'm concerned about my Medicare. Do you have any position on healthcare, or uh, just reach out to the, to the seniors who I spoke with many persons? What are your plans for Medicare?" So he said, "Please." And I'm gonna pause here because we actually have the the gentleman. We have the gentleman. Um, who was who spoke actually on a previous episode of Street Vibe, and we're just going to get an excerpt of the question that he had asked, and we'll include it right here, and we'll get a response. Here is here is the question regarding 
that this gentleman posed to, to Mr. Castro? Um, I'm a Democrat. Right? Okay, all, okay. All, all, all okay. And um, I will be interviewing John Anthony Castro next week, Monday, on my show. Okay, Do you have a question for him? He's one of the U.S. presidential candidates. What would you like me to ask him? <laughs> well, what would I like to ask him? Well, I, I just hope that they um, don't take away the seniors' um, yes. um, Medicare and, mm -hmm. and, and Social Security and things like that, okay? <laughs> All right. I want them to make sure that seniors get what they... they yes, what and they you're a senior and you're very concerned about that. very concerned about that. That's Thank great. you. Thank you very much, sir, for participating. Yes, and I yes, hope you have a great day, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Medicare is great. I want to leave it where, where it's at. Um, okay. As far as our healthcare system, I wanted to do something that was pretty similar, but a little bit different with a capitalist twist of what the Brits did with the national yes. uh, the, the healthcare system. Um, I wanted to create a national healthcare council, but kind of like, and this is where libertarians hate the, the analogy, but this is the only analogy, unfortunately, I can make, but again, we, is the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, a lot of people don't know this, it's really a, a brokered power sharing agreement between the banking establishment and the United States government. Okay. And uh, it, there's a whole book on it, you know, called The Creature of Jekyll Island. And, uh, and just for my Creature listeners. of Jekyll Island, guys. Yeah, yeah. The Creature of Jekyll Island was, uh, it was actually a negotiation that took place on an island called Jekyll Island, um, yes. you know, which, you know, it sounds like Mr. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. <laughs> yes. uh, and, uh, what they did is they created this new system, the Federal Reserve, and their, their shared power between the CEOs of the major banks and then government bureaucrats. And together they create uh, monetary policy and, and set banking policy. Um, and, and unfortunately, as much as libertarians hate this, it was the best we could do at that time because there was a, there was a lot of dangers and, and, and a lot of the cons outweigh the pros when you central have a, just a regular U.S. central bank. Uh, right. it, it, I too much for to go into this episode, but yes. you know, if, if people read the book The Creature of Jekyll Island, they would understand. I want to learn from that, but build something similar but better, avoiding those mistakes that we made with the Federal Reserve, and create a national healthcare council. Yes. And having the national healthcare council and putting all those companies together, along with you know government bureaucrats, um, what that effectively does is it creates a de facto single payer system but it's a privatized single payer system. And so by doing that, we would be able to dramatically drive down healthcare costs. Um, the power elite that's currently in power, the status quo, wouldn't object to it, right? Because it's further entrenching their power by putting yes. them from the council, like the Federal Reserve. That's why the banking CEOs ex accepted it when the Federal Reserve was created, because they knew that, hey, this is making us pretty much like permanent uh, fixtures of yeah. the state's economic system. And so this would be the one way where Wall Street would be on board, liberals would be on board because they'd be like, well, it's a de facto, you know, uh, single payer system, let's do it. And, uh, and, and I think and it would drive down healthcare costs. And so the entire American public and electorate could get behind it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's what they always say, the devil's in the details, you know, so we yes. have to broker this and, and negotiate in a way um, where we're not just thinking of an immediate solution, but the fact that this could be a, a permanent part of our system for the next 150 years, we have to make sure we get it right. I felt like they rushed to the Federal Reserve System, and that's why they call it the creature of Jekyll Island, you know, because, yes. uh, you know, it, 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 it was just fraught with uh, a lot of loopholes, and, and uh, which opens the door to potential abuses. But, uh, 
but that that would be my solution. And again, best of both worlds. You know, uh, yeah. the right would not object to that. They'd actually kind of like the idea. Um, liberals would too. Again, it's not everybody's dream. You know, neither side would be totally happy, uh, but it would be a permanent uh, solution to fixing fixing our national healthcare system. And um, what are your what are your greatest um, fears? Um, one young man said he got into temperance talking because he was a he. I mean, I asked him, "Look, is student loan? What did you could apply student loan?" He said, "No, I would have, when, I, when I'm finished, I would have to forty plus interest, forty thousand plus interest." One of the young men said, uh, uh, "Because uh, he had to look after his five, six young um, children, and these are things that you can wait until with." You, you, you had an experience where you've seen all of that, and you've experienced it, and you've seen all of that happening in society. The vulnerable and marginal people, marginal groups in society are struggling too. But what are your fears as you think about this new thrust of yours, that this endeavor? What are your fears and fears for, for the future, fears for the present? And, um, and second, this is a two-part question. Then how do you plan to, um, um, to get over that? Okay, I, I missed the first part because. Uh, oh, sorry. What are your fears um, as you think about uh, the future and this new thrust that you are embarking? On? What are your fears in the back? Oh, yes, yes. Um, you know, my fears is, is uh, you know based in history, which is that uh, you know there's that old saying, um, "Don't kill the messenger." You know, everybody knows that saying, right? Well, it's a saying for a reason. <laughs> it's yes. that all throughout history, messengers have been killed. <laughs> and so, you know, unfortunately, you know, we're, we're trying to bring a message. We're, we're, we're trying to say something positive, something good. Um, and unfortunately, some people just don't like being told that. And uh, and so that's always a concern, you know. Uh, it, but especially in this hyper-politicized environment, you know, we, we saw things happening like where, you know, the Trump uh, supporters were trying to run a, a Biden bus off the road. Um, you <laughs> yes, know, yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we we saw all this ridiculousness, right? You know, this, mm -hmm. this um, radicalization of, uh, yes. of you know one side in particular, but you know, it, 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 both sides are becoming hyper politicized and pulled apart. You know, you know, to both extreme ends. But this also roots back to gerrymandering. You know, it's the Supreme Court has not had the political spine, you know, to to do something about it. You know, and and to put an end to gerrymandering, try to create a formula. Uh, they'd rather just do this hands-off approach um, and, and watch our republic erode from from within. And um, so, you know, th I have my fears, you know, and I have my concerns about about doing this, um, about yeah. making it. A, I mean, the central part of my candidacy is that I'm going to be suing Trump in New Hampshire, right? In the primary, you know. And um, right, and I saw, and I was, I'm so happy you brought that up. That's in the book. I wanted to ask yeah. you about. Um, yeah, yeah, and, I mean, and you say that only certain people have that authority to do so and so on and so forth. But yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. So you know, unfortunately, the courts have, have uh, elaborated on this term called standing. You know, where you have to have a direct injury, and a voter doesn't have a direct injury. I disagree with that. Just out there for all the viewers, uh, I, I think that every single American would be uh, have a direct injury if somebody disqualified was running. But unfortunately, the courts have not held that, and. Right. Uh, and unfortunately, once it goes to the general election, they view it as what's called a political question, which is their way of saying, we're not gonna resolve that. So yes. the, the conclusion based on all my legal research is that 
it would have to be a fellow Republican presidential primary candidate that brings this suit against Trump to allow the federal judiciary the opportunity to determine uh, the extent to which Section 3 of the 14th Amendment anti-insurrection disqualification clause applies to Trump. And I fully intend on doing that. And as you can imagine, with some of uh, you know his fanatical supporters, uh, and, some and of you know, sorry for those of us who didn't understand what you repeat that again. You full intend on doing what? Oh, I fully intend on suing uh, Donald Trump in New Hampshire. New Hampshire. The reason why yes. it's New Hampshire is because that's the first Republican primary in the country. Okay. And so uh, the filing for that would open, I believe, the second Tuesday of uh, of November 2023, so next year. Yes. 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 And. Uh, I would have to wait. I mean, I'm going to be there like the morning it opens, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we'd have to wait until Trump files, and then we're both kids. Yes. And then literally at that moment, we're going to just electronically file the, the federal complaint. Yes. And so at that point, it kicks off the litigation, you know, between right. you know, Anna Castro versus Donald John Trump. Uh, yes. And it would be the question of whether he's disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which says any person that has given aid or comfort or uh, participate in any way in an insurrection is ineligible to hold public office. And right. so we'll see at that point if the federal judiciary has the time and guts yes. to bring on this issue and to make a declaration. Uh, right. But I can tell you that, uh, you know, the fact that everybody's already rallying behind DeSantis in Florida is evidence that they think Trump is going down in flames. <laughs> okay, okay, so, right, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's a big part of my, uh, uh, my my candidacy. But because I view him as poison and toxic, and so a lot of people yes. are like, you know, oh, but you're about bipartisanship, bringing everybody together. So why are you trying to uh, have yes. qualified? Um, and it's just like, look, <laughs> you you can't have toxic poison in, in the mixture when you're right. trying to yes. bring people together uh, because they're they're active element that is trying to prevent that. And you yes. have to neutralize that first. Once we neutralize right. that, then we can bring everybody together. And so, um, you know, but unfortunately, you know, I understand where you're coming from here. Sorry to cut. Here is it that you, you, you know, you're about bipartisanship. You believe that you are against extremism because you believe that that's against progress. And it will be hypocritical to what you're about if you don't. And some of these, these, there is a process to this. You know, at the same time, you have to also root out the toxic while at the same time. And while at the same time, think about moving forward from that. But it begins with things like these. And you believe that Mr. Trump is part of the toxic and you believe he bears any responsibility for what happened in January 6th? Oh, yeah. I mean, based on, so I've reviewed a lot of the evidence from the January 6th committee. And I think when they finally put this all together into, um, it's going to be a book like the 9-11 Commission Report. Um, yes. I think it's going to be very clear that this was orchestrated starting two days after the election. Yeah, and yeah. it had to do with the fact that um, they immediately, um, they were immediately replacing people in the Pentagon. They were putting people in key positions. Uh, they were changing the authority over uh, who could activate the National Guard. Uh, they were um, immediately promoted Michael Flynn's brother, gave him an extra right. star, and then put him in the right department. They would oversee have direct power over yes. uh, National Guard and other elements of uh, protection in Washington, D.C. Uh, they, there, there is no doubt. A lot of people just don't know this yet because it hasn't been revealed yet. Yes. They were actively trying to overthrow the American Republic. They were going to overthrow it. That was their, that was their goal. Yes. They only decided to back down when they saw that things weren't going as planned. The plan was to zip-tie members, hold them hostage, get yes. the rest to flee, and 
then at that point make a declaration of a new republic. They were literally going to overthrow the entire federal government. Yes. And just yes. people yes. just they think that uh, people like me and others are being hysterical, and it's just because they haven't seen the evidence yet. But I think once the evidence is revealed, they're going to see how close the American experiment came to yes. completely collapsing. Collapsing. Well, thank you so much. And um, and uh, what are your what? Uh, and I might I may have asked you these questions already, but um. Who, where do you draw your greatest inspiration from? I have a And do you have siblings? And um, tell me, and um, do you have a family? And what's and how how do they inspire you? So this question is obviously several from. But um, where do you get your inspiration? What drives you when you get up in the morning? What makes you tick and so on? Yeah, I mean, I, I draw my inspiration from a lot of sources. Uh, yes, our founding fathers, you know. Uh, Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine. Um, you know, I know most people don't view Thomas Paine as a founding father. I do, um, because it was his writings that, that you know led to to the free thinking movement. Um, you know, Abraham Lincoln, JFK, um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, a lot of people. A lot of people. Yeah. I mean, again, I think again, everybody. You know, because you ask a Republican who are your greatest heroes, right? They'll always say Teddy Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> uh, and Ronald Reagan, right? Like the real yes. um, and to me, no, it's, it's, it's both sides, it's all sides, it's, it's everybody, you know? Um, in, in more of the social realm, Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, um, you know, again, it's, it's very, you know, focusing on, on the peaceful part, you know, that you, you, you can make change. There are a lot of people that don't believe you can't make change except through violent means, right? Like the only real power comes from the barrel of a gun. You know, that's a very popular saying. Um, but I, I don't agree with that, you know, and that's what politics is about. Politics is about influencing people. You know, it's, it's about talking to them, explaining your side of the story and getting them to slowly agree. They might not fully agree, but at least if you can get them to at least see where you're coming from, that in and of itself is powerful because now you've made that person more well-rounded. Um, and at least they can intellectually disagree with you, fully yeah. understanding your side uh, of the story as well. Um, but it will get them to, to slightly change their position as well, having newfound knowledge and understanding. Yeah. Um, so yeah, absolutely. From a lot of different sources, you know, growing up, uh, you know, my brother was a big influence on me and, yes. um, he was the one that introduced me to politics and, um, uh, your brother is older than you, younger. Uh, my brother's older than me by four years. And, um, you know, when I was in uh, high school, he introduced me to the anti-globalization you know, against the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, and the International Monetary Fund, um, you know, the Battle of Seattle in 1999 and all of that. And so that was sort of my introduction into, uh, you know, our rigged corporate economy. Uh, and I've written about that. All of what you have just said, every single issue that you have spoken about is in my book, Mailing World, and I've done research about oh, nice. That's because the world, people don't understand the World Trade Organization, the IMF, and especially if you are from the global south or you have any kind of affiliation with the global south, and by that, when I talk about the global south, I'm talking about yeah, yeah. developing countries and so on. Um, you know, many, they, they have experience with the IMF and so on and so forth. So I can understand what, I can understand what you're saying here, but you, but and continue with that, continue. I apologize for continuing. No, 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 no. So, exactly, uh, because, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was my introduction into the global politics and then understanding how our rigged corporate economy works. Yes, um, yes, yes. And then, you know, what to kind of do about it, you know, because, right. again, uh, you know, they, they always try to paint it as a, a, a false, uh, false uh, 
equalization, I, I guess, like, um, yeah. I forgot what the, what the term is, but basic false equivalence, that's it. Yes. Um, because they say, oh, if you're against our, our current economy, then you're anti-capitalist, right? You're socialist, you're a communist. And it's just like, no, no, I'm not. Um, I believe yes. it's free market capitalism. And what we have right now in the United States is not free market capitalism. It's rigged corporatism. There's a difference. Um, if we had free yes. market capitalism, we'd have entrepreneurs uh, being able to start up very easily. Uh, you'd have a ton of, and you've had, you'd have a very robust uh, small business economy, right? Think of the 1960s. You know, we had more wealth. We had a robust middle class because a lot of businesses were locally owned. The local pharmacy, uh, you know, the local butcher, all of that. And now that's all been replaced with Walmart, CVS, Walgreens. And so, yes. you know, that means that when you spend money in your local community, it goes out. It goes out to, to, to Wall Street investors in New York. And so, um, so again, you know, that's that's what I always tell people because you know, once I, once I start talking about labor unions and living wages, it's rare to think like, oh, you're a socialist. It's just like, yes, no, it's that, is it's that, that is true. That is true. Liberty and, and the freedom of contract. Um, and, and then I tell them, if you really want to get into what capitalism really is. But you're is, about protecting capitalism. Mm -hmm. You're about, in, in other words, so you're saying that capitalism, the capitalism that we have now is not the capitalism that we have then, the one that promotes um, individualism and fairness and free competition and so on and so forth. So you're saying that by promoting some of these unions and having stronger involvement in government and so on, this is important. Yeah. Those oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Capitalism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I felt like we, it was really good in the 60s, you know. Yes. Uh, but then, you know, all throughout the 70s, especially the 80s, uh, yes. and 90s and 2000s, you had this consolidation of corporate power. Um, yes. And I know that, look, naturally in, in a, a capitalist economy, you're going to have corporations merge, right? Because they provide right. a better product, a better service. Um, yes. But then again, like I mentioned before, you get into that uncompetitive behavior where you start sabotaging uh, your competitors. You start uh, abusing the lobbying process yes. to create uh, new illegal barriers to new entrants. Um, you know, and, and again, it's, it's uh, me having later in life studied at Harvard Business School and starting to understand how they do and manipulate the system later, that uh, I started understanding like, oh, okay, so that's how they got to the position that they're at now. And so the question is, how do we resolve it now? Well, that's, we have the laws on the books, the, the anti-monopoly laws, we're yes. just not enforcing them. Because every time we think about enforcing them against Google or Facebook or AT&T or any of these corporate goliaths, they start pumping millions of dollars in federal lobby. And they buy out state legislatures. They bought out the entire U.S. Congress already. And yes. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's a uh, it's unfortunate, but uh, but like I said, my background, my knowledge, and my understanding, I know how to approach this. I know what needs to be done to actually fix the system, um, yeah. and it would be in a way where we could definitely get bipartisan support uh, to rally behind it. Great, and um, finally. Um you just said something about companies being bought out and so on and so forth. One young man said to me, ask, ask, yes, John Cash will be for me, please. I'm like, what, what is it, what is it? He said, ask him, I hope, what are his plans before he gets contaminated by this? <laughs> no, and this is a fair question. I mean, yeah. he said that a lot of people have great intentions and pure, pure intentions and then, then they get into office. And know I, I need to make, a lot of people have pure intentions and so on. Yeah. They get yeah, power, power corrupts and absolute power. Yes. Corrupts, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So, and then, I mean, the, the lobbying, the lobbying system in Washington, DC was, 
we're going to pause you. I actually have the question from the gentleman. I'm going to play it for you, and then you will hear Mr. Castro's response. And as you think about our political leaders, what is it you want? Before the question for, the, for Mr. Castro, what do you want our leaders, community leaders, and um, state and political leaders, what do you want them to know? Hmm. Because you, you are within a particular social, you touch base with so many people in community and yes. you represent a lot of people who have the same mind and experiencing. So based on where you are, what do you want the leaders to know? What, would you, what message are you, would you send, tell them? I want the leaders to know that uh, every human being has something to believe in. Uh, one is themselves, two is others, and three is their future. Um, I'm really starting to realize, you know, like not believing in yourself, it can limit you yes. as a human being mm. in the world. Uh, like you would just have yourself <laughs> sitting on a bench. Yeah. You know, like you looking at the sun and you just falling back, but mm. there are people that are in the plane flying yes. right over you. Yes. I want to be inside that plane. <laughs> that is, that's sitting. actually deep. That's <laughs> under the sun. Deep. Yes. <laughs> you know, right. Tone of my skin. Yeah. I want to fly too. Yeah. I want to see what's next. Mm. Time to explore. Yeah. Time to expand your mind. Yes. It's time to achieve. Right. Um, I just want them and to let everyone know. You know, it's it's time to start believing again. Okay. It's no. time to start believing again. It's quite interesting that you said that because a lot of people have been saying uh, lately, you know, there's no belief in society. There's no belief in the world anymore. We don't believe in anything greater than ourselves. Um, and because of that. There is no respect for self and there's no respect for others. There's no belief for humanity. And so there's so much chaos in the world, you, you know. So that's quite, so you want the leaders to know, you want them to believe in self believe and believe in people. And also to facilitate the development of people. Yeah. All people, no matter what walk of, walk of life of people has come from. And what message do you have for Mr. Castro? Or what question would you like to ask him? Oh man, because he's running for president, 2024 president, 2024 running for president. The question I have for him: uh, We all know, and you know, one part of this job is to do the right things and. and to care for the people and provide service for the people. Yeah. But what is his plan? Not the not the states, not the government. Mm. What is his plan that he has set for himself before he has stepped into office? Okay. What he wanted to do. Okay. As far as making a difference. Ah. Because you know when they get to the office and everything they start speaking. They and you know yes. they're their team behind them right you is what set to... policy and influence them and stuff and okay so you want to know what what was your agenda what 
uh, interesting. That's a good question. That's for, Mr. Castro, I know you, are lis you listen to the show sometimes. created um, to give the power elite control, right? I mean, it's right. like, uh, I don't want to get too far off topic and, and I want to yes. focus on staying pure, but um, like yes. here in Texas, for example, a lot of people are surprised to find out that all of our judges are elected. Even our Supreme yes. Court judges are elected. And so people ask why? Well, you have to go back to the founding of the Republic. The landowners, which were the aristocracy at that time, uh, yes. the elites, the status quo, they did not like the idea of an independent judiciary. So what did they do? They made judges electable. Why? Yeah. Well, because through elections and bankrolling their campaigns, you can effectively control the judges. And so think of the, the, the same concept applies to the lobbying system. Why was the lobbying system created to begin with? It legalizes bribery. Well, it was created because the elite wanted, was they were afraid of people in Washington, D.C. being too independent. Um, yes. so they wanted to have a way to corrupt them and to erode their independence with time. And I knew this from the get-go, which is yeah. why my first, uh, both my campaigns for Senate, which Senate was more of a PR stunt, I'll be honest. The congressional race, though, was more serious. You know, I spent uh, over half a million dollars of my own money, but I did not take a single dollar. And that's specific by design. I don't want to be corrupted. And that's me acknowledging that money is a corrupting influence, right? Yes, yes, um, yes. As much as I say that I'm pure, it, it would become difficult, right? If somebody is, is giving me two, three million dollars to a super PAC, for me to not answer that person's phone call or not to give that person special access or special preferential treatment. And that is why I decided from the get-go, I need to focus on my business, Bonafides first, build a successful company, sell it for everything it's worth, and then use that wealth that I generate to run an entirely independent campaign. And so that is why uh, in this campaign, I we, we wanna put a lot of money into New Hampshire to see how I perform. But yes. it's, and it's all gonna be contingent on New Hampshire to see how we, how if we can get at least the top three, um, yes. I might consider, I think either way, we're gonna go all the way to the convention. And, and right. I can get into strategy later. But uh, I think that I'm running now, I definitely wanna win. We will yes. see how we're gonna do New Hampshire. Yes. But I'm still young, I'm 38 right. years old. And I fully enjoy- You're how old? 38. Oh, you know, I I said I told him that you were forty four, but you are thirty eight. <laughs> I am thirty eight. I'm thirty eight. Younger than and me. You're, you're younger than me. Yes. Yeah. But I'm I'm definitely not. This is not the first time, uh, at first and last time I'm running. I'm I'm right, running. That's true. Um, and I think this uh, this may become a thing for me. You know, I, I'm yes. going to running until the American people feel fit to select me to lead the nation. And what's different about this time than the last? Um. Well, you mean the congressional run? Yes, that, yes. Um, I mean, no. No, because you ran already, so and you're running again. So, so what is, any, what's, any, what's new about it and new about you? Oh, what's new, yes. And so, I mean, as, as we've been putting together the strategy and, and we've yeah. had people volunteer, uh, come up as volunteers in New Hampshire, Iowa, um, California, Florida, New Mexico, Nevada. I mean, we have people all over the place. Um, yes. I'm putting together the campaign infrastructure. And that's why some people are asking like, oh, is this a serious run? <laughs> I would not be spending, I, I'm a very busy man. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm not only building a company, but I'm also setting the ground. And this is the reason why I'm starting so early. Is yes. I, I know I'm not gonna get any party support, right? From the Republican National Committee. So I'm gonna have to do all this on my own. Yes. Uh, 
but I'm already putting together the campaign infrastructure to, to make this possible. But I'm also letting my campaign volunteers know this isn't a one-off presidential campaign. Um, I hope we get lucky and, and that we can come out on top in New Hampshire and, and that might drive a momentum and there might be a sudden like Obama type surprise, you know, where- Yes, yes. I know what. Um, but I do also acknowledge that the likelihood of that is, is very low. So I'm letting all of our volunteers know that I'm in this for the next 16, 24 years. There's going to be multiple presidential campaigns um, until again, we can convince the American people that our ideas are solid, that we can actually get stuff done. And when we start getting away from this divisiveness and start coming together again as a country, they're going to be looking to leaders that were the leaders of that bipartisan movement that helped achieve that. And that's where we feel that we can then emerge and then run a very successful presidential campaign and then hopefully be in charge of, of leading the free world. And, uh, and I'm going to ask you, like, if people want to get involved in your campaign, where they can go to, but I hope we can get that question because I want to ask you about community development, which is probably the last one. Community development, a lot of people in communities, they're saying that as much as we have, we talk about stimulus and so on and so forth, but communities, it's as if the, the investments, the financing, the funding is not reaching the community, community level. And people are not, you know, I hear Shaquille and Neil say that when they're setting up a mama papa fund, but it's still not reaching. There's so much talent in communities, and I, and I do research as well, anthropological studies. I go into communities. I, I go into cities. I do comparative study. In, I go into communities and I ask hundreds of questions. That's I, I get involved in the community one, see what's going on, and it's not reaching them. So many talent and so on. You know, is there any plans that you have in terms of access and reach and just get really connecting in terms of business and community development? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's like what you said. Um, you know, the difference between you and I and others is that we roll up our sleeves and we go out there. You know, yeah. I didn't uh, hire a bunch of people to try doing an organizing for me when I was in college. I went out and I did it myself. I started knocking yes. on doors, um, meeting with sanitation workers for the for the city, and convincing them to sign a union card. Uh, yes. You know, I went knocking door to door on uh, you know uh, fast food restaurants and trying to get them to sign up for the Service Employees International. Yes. yes. <clears throat> but a lot of other people don't do that. They don't. They don't do that. You know. Uh, where the metal meets the meat, boots on the ground, you know, roll yes. your hands and, and get your own hands dirty. And and I think that's unfortunately what a lot of people don't do. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately that means that a lot of money just ends up getting wasted on the uh, inefficient uh, administration of those funds and, uh, and then they don't actually end up hitting the community. The difference between, again, me and others is that uh, I would actually go out into the communities. I would actually yes. see, like do like a boots on the ground inspection. And yes. uh, and unfortunately that's 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 the only way that it can be done. It it, it requires a lot more literal legwork, but yes. uh, but if you want to see your vision come to fruition, you have to be willing to put in the energy. And that's what I've generally found in politics. There's a lot of passion, but there's not enough actual boots on the ground energy being done. Yeah, so you're not about talk, you're about action and getting things done. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you have to have a good plan, right? So you don't want to yes. get in there without a plan. Um, but it, it's, it's this, again, balance. You know, I, I've I found that there are a lot of leaders out there that are too obsessed with precision. They want everything to be, to be accurate before they pull the trigger. 
But then a lot of times that obsession with precision can lead to inaction. But then there's entrepreneurs like me, right? That we just like sometimes roll, roll the dice, yeah. shoot first, ask questions later. And then that's the <laughs> reckless, you know? Yes. So that's, that's this extreme end. And so what I've generally found, uh, you know, being in both politics and business is to find that, that middle ground, um, you know, where, where you can do the planning, but also you have to have a, a clear red line that by this date would pull in the trigger. So do the best you can planning, but then you eventually have to execute. And again, you have to actually be boots on the ground and inspecting these communities and making sure that the funding is actually reaching them. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, again, having, having personally experienced that, uh, you know, I think it, yeah, it puts me in a really good position to, uh, to, and a lot of people don't like this, you know, micromanaging, you know, they view micromanaging as a bad thing in the business world, it can be a bad thing sometimes. Um, but I think in government, as, especially as an executive being, you know, the executive of the executive branch, you have to micromanage, you have to make yes. sure that, you know, your agencies are doing what they're told because, yes. you know, these agencies have, have, uh, employees that do not agree with your political views. Right, and, right. uh, this is what is sometimes referred to as bureaucratic resistance. You know, uh, Biden is experiencing this right now with Trump holdovers. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, and Obama experienced it with some of the Bush holdovers. Yeah. You know, you'll, you'll always have the bureaucracy, and, and these are just ordinary people that don't agree with your political views, and you're trying to implement yeah. a policy, and they're going to do everything they can to derail it. And so, again, you know, as an executive, you need to be at those departments, you need to be in those communities, and making sure that your policies are actually being effectuated. And yeah. uh, and it's also that understanding and that knowledge that I would bring to the table of being able to uh, to make sure that uh, you know nobody's screwing with our agenda. Yes, yes. Oh, great. Thank you so much. And guys, for those of us who are just joining us, we're here with uh, the 2024 presidential candidate, John Anthony Castro. It is refreshing. A young man who is very experienced, who has tremendous hope and dreams. And um, coming up from a grassroots organization, and he's taking the world on by storm. So much vision, so much passion, so much hope, so many ideas, man. <laughs> and how can people get involved in your campaign and in what and what you're doing? Oh uh, yeah, just go to johncastro.com uh, and uh, I'm I'm really big on on Twitter right now. So yes. you know, I, I would invite people to Twitter. I know everybody's really upset right now with Elon Musk taking over. Yeah, um, yes. <laughs> but I I just say, look, you know. You're not going to win over people by staying in an echo chamber. And if anything good is going to come out of Elon Musk, uh, it's going to be that he forces everybody into a room together. And yes, yeah, some of us dislike each other. Nobody can tell me they dislike Trump more than me. I'm literally making my entire campaign about suing him. <laughs> right? You know, so yes. uh, you know, it, don't, nobody can ever accuse me of liking Trump. But yes. I don't. I don't mind if he comes back on Twitter. Yeah, he's going to use it to try to race bait. He's going to use it to try to subvert democracy. Yes. We're smarter. We're stronger. Uh -huh. Let's confront them. Let yes. let them come to us. Let's engage okay. them. Let's talk with them. And not to troll them, but to again to try to educate them, try to illuminate right. them, um, and and enlighten them. And yes. I'm I'm not afraid to to back down from a fierce debate. But I've generally found that that social media has done that to a lot of people. They're afraid yes. of others that oppose their views. And uh, that is true. and again, I I think that. That's one good thing that could come of it, which is that it could yeah. actually help bring us back together and force us to talk to each other. And right. uh, and yeah, hopefully things will get better. Thank you so much. And you have the last word. Do you have anything that you'd like to say to anybody here 
to the to the audience and just the people as you seek to become a great leader in this. Yeah, just you know, don't get discouraged with short-term losses. Yeah. You know, when when uh, Trump got elected, you know, I know a lot of people uh, felt really demoralized, wondered where this country was headed. Um, but I also feel that it was a lot of complacency. You know, they elected Obama, and then everybody just felt like, oh, okay, I can go home now. No, you can't go home. <laughs> yes, yes, um, yes. You know, it, it's you. You need to continue pushing. It's it's a it's a never-ending struggle, and you need to constantly stay engaged. You need to constantly stay involved. You need to be in it, be in it for the long run, right? Like, yes. I'm not gonna if I if I lose in 2024, I'm not gonna get discouraged and, and hide right. You know, I'm gonna come back again in 2028, yes. 2032, and 2036, and 24. I'm gonna keep coming and coming and coming yes. until yes. I die. <laughs> And yes, so, yes. you know, you have to you have to understand uh, and have that long term strategy because if not, you're going to get very quickly exhausted, very quickly demoralized, and you're going to mm-hmm. retract from politics, yes. right? Because you don't see that immediate gratification, that immediate short term win. Um, so I would just say that you know you got to take the losses with the wins, yes. and it'll make the wins uh, uh, much better when you get them. Yes. Thank you so much. I am. I'm inspired by you. I'm touched. I'm a young man that's trying to build an organization as well, a personal brand. It hasn't been easy, but um, but I'm inspired by you. I'm inspired by what you have said, and um, and uh, and I am wishing you all the best. And guess what? I know that we will find other opportunities to connect. I hope, and that and of course, and I will invite you to come back on the show. And um, as we grow and as we get better and bigger, and um, for those of us who are who listen to the show, thank you so much. This is the Neoliberal Corporation, serving the world today to solve tomorrow's challenges. And, and you can reach us at https forward, um, colon forward slash forward slash neoliberal.com or ronaldocmckenzie.com. And you can support us at https colon forward slash forward slash. And- Welcome back, and um, what an amazing interview. Here, he spoke with me for over two hours, and we, and you know, let me summarize, because I summarized part B, part A. In summary of the second part of the interview, we learned this. We asked several questions, and the second part of the interview was really, a lot of the questions came from persons who were aware that I was going to be interviewing um, Mr. Mr. Castro and posed questions to him and um, he answered every single one of them. And um, he, he said, we learned this. What We asked him, what are you doing to promote positivity? Somebody, Shade, a young woman, asked him, what are you doing to promote positivity and to move us forward? And he talks about bipartisanship and he talks about bipartisanship over and over and over and over. He talks about seeking a middle ground. He says, we all love this country, but we all disagree. And the means, and, and, and we all disagree in terms of the means and the goals of getting there. But what is important is bridging this ideological divide is the most important aspect of, of, of okay, the most important aspect, and it's the most imp- important aspect of his campaign, okay? Bridging the, the, and of course, I did ask him, I did ask him about, I said, Obama, Mr. Obama was trying to do that. He tried that at first and failed. And so how is it, how, how can you be different? And he says, this was his answer, which I find quite interesting. He said this, Obama had power, but did not have the courage to use it. It was a missed opportunity on his part. 
And he also he went on he also went on to say that Donald Trump, on the other hand, making a comparison between Donald Trump and Mr. Obama, he said Donald Trump and Mr. Mr. Trump, on the other hand, got power, was not afraid to use it. At least, at least he had the courage to use it. So he talks about he said he said we need to put power into action, and that's the problem with many with some leaders. We need to put power into action. They get into power. And they want to keep talking. That was quite interesting. And I, he's talked about that was one of the problems with, with Obama. And um, there was another question from some of the young people that I posed to him um, that we posed that he, and, that he answered in this particular, in the second half of the interview, where some young men asked him, what's the best way to change our community and to avert Philadelphia, communities like Philadelphia and certain predominantly black and brown cities turning into a surveillance state? And he's, he answered this. He says... He says this, um, we, we, he said we need to think about new ways of policing. And he went on to say that he grew up into the hood. He grew up in the hood. He said that at the end of his street, he lived on Elm Street in Texas or somewhere. And he said that the, at the end of his street was a crack house. Okay. And he would play basketball. And of course, the police would, would and, 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 there was, and there were active gunfire, gun shooting going on. And um, he said it would take the police 35 minutes to respond. But now that he live, lives in an affluent community, there's an, a, a, an issue is happening. It takes the police five minutes to, to respond. He talks about that. Yet we know that in communities, the poli- police officers are everywhere parked up in some of these um, um, black and brown and communities. But it takes them quite long to respond to issues. But so, he, so that's, that's quite interesting. He also talked about... Um, he also talked about the fact that the inability to provide this inability to provide effective policing is okay. The inability of police to provide effective policing is is something that we need to look at as as, as a society. And he talks about the fact that one of the inability to provide effective policing is is the fact that we are too reactive. We are very reactive, and because we are reactive, we cannot find a middle ground. So there is either over policing as issues happen. We either over police. And then when people react to over-police, we under-police. So he talks about the fact, again, that we have to strike a middle ground um, and not be reactive to issues. Um, and so I asked him the question, how do we find the balance? How do we find the balance? And, you know, one of the things that, um, that he talks about is that he said that um, he's a well-rounded individual. He talks about his own experience. You know, because and um, because of his experience, um, he said that he's been he said he's been at the far left. You know, he's been marching and organizing and 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 and, and the whole issue, uh, uh, marching with unions and so on and so forth. But he said he's also been at the other spectrum. Now he's a business owner and an employer. So he's seen both sides of the spectrum spectrum. So he said that he is at a very unique place to help society find a balance between over-policing and under-policing. And, um, and that's what makes his candidacy unique and special, according to him. Um, he said he's a well-rounded leader who can find a common ground. He's conservative, but he'll find a way to pass policies that make it palatable um, and sh- on both sides and, show how it was, and, he, and showed how it was done with the earned, and he explained how it was done with the earned income credit the earned income credit. He's, he also talks about another way 
some other ways we can do this, we have to also stay away from toxic ideology. Toxic ideology. Okay? He says that I believe in a republicanism. He, I believe in Republican Party. I believe in conservatism. But, but we'll find a way that include the other side and find ways to get them to buy in. You know, he talks about that. Um, we asked him about, I actually posed some questions to him about Medicare because one per- person on Street Vibe who um, said to me that they were concerned about their Medicaid or Medicare and wanted to know his position on Medicare or Medicaid. And this was what he said. He said, I will leave it where it is. Mr. Castro said, I will leave Medicare where it is, but he wants to create a national health care council, like how the Federal Reserve is set up and structured. He said, what happened with the Fed? For those of us who are unaware of that, there is some kind of partnership between banks and the government. So he wants to, and he, and he referenced this book called The Creature of Jekyll Island, which if you guys don't know that book, you can check it out, The Creature of Jekyll Island, which talks about this partnership and so on and so forth. So he talks about, but he says, while, we, while he wants to look to how the Federal Reserve was set up, he wants to avoid the mistakes, though. Um, that's what he says. So he talks about that. Um, he says he wants to create what is known as a de facto single-payer system that is privatized, that will drive down health care costs. That, that's according, again, to John Anthony Castro. Um, and so he says that, um, and he says that he will find buy-in, and, and because it, uh, this particular plan already has buy-in from both sides of the aisle. And I asked him, and from people from all walks of society, and of course I asked him, what are your greatest fears? What are your greatest fears? And of course he alluded to, to what happened um, um, with, with a recent election when some, um, some people went to the extreme of even tried to kill political candidates. And that, that, can, be a, a, and that can be a fear of his, you know, and, that, and he alluded to that in a sense. Um, one of the things that he, because as you know, let me tell you why this is very important. And I did not explore this with him some more. As it, when I asked him about his fears and he talked about, and he alluded to, to, to being, um, uh, to an experience where persons were, were committed violence against other political opponents and so on. And because, you know, he, he, he will tell you that he's trying to censor Donald Trump. He's trying to censor Donald Trump. And he said that he will bring a suit against Donald Trump at the, at the primary the, the New Hampshire primary, the first GOP primary, which will happen the second Tuesday of November in 2023, Mr. Castro will bring a suit against Mr. Donald Trump for giving aid or comfort to the January, to the January 6th insurrectionists. Okay, that because he said Donald Trump is poison and Donald Trump is toxic. And he goes on to say one cannot have poison, one cannot have toxic once you are bringing people together, and you know, this is very important. You say, once you are bringing people together, you cannot have toxic and one cannot have poison. So one must remove the toxic. And he says, Donald Trump believes, he says, Donald Trump believes, Donald Trump believes, um, sorry, he says that Donald, he believes that Donald Trump bears some responsibility in the insurrection. In, uh, in terms of the orchestration of it. And he went on to say that many persons are unaware of, of the investigation and the revelations. There's, there's information right now that many of us and many Americans are unaware of. 
And when you sit down and mull over the, in, the reports and look at the investigations about what, um, then you will realize what they were actually trying to do. In fact, he went on to say that the insurrection was planned. It was planned day, several days before the insurrection. It was planned. That's what he said. He went on to say that they were actively trying to overthrow the federal government. They were actually actively trying to over. There was a plan and there was a plan, a detailed plan and a strategy to do so. That was the plan. And he said that they were, they, they, they were literally, they literally, they were going to overthrow the, the federal government. And, um, and he called, and that was the American experiment. So there was, the operation was called the American experiment. And he said that they were, li they were literally, they were trying to literally overthrow the federal government. Okay. And he alluded to that. So of course he, he says that, um, he will bring a suit against Donald Trump. Okay. He will censor Donald Trump, um, at the, at the GOP primary in November. I asked him what were his greatest inspirations. He, and of course he alluded to Americans, but he says everyone. He talked about Mahatma Gandhi, MLK, Teddy Roosevelt. Just about, he says that, you know, as a person who is all about bridging the divide, his insp he looks to, 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 to different people from both sides of, of the fence for his inspiration. Um, he said politics is about influence. It's about people talking to people so that they can understand each other. Talking to, and sometimes that's what's lacking. Um, I asked him, he also said that he, his older brother, his older brother is, is, is four years older than he is, is one of his greatest inspiration. And his older brother introduced him to anti-globalization movement, uh, the world, and talking, look, um, alluding to the World Bank and the IMF and looking at the global south and the global north dynamics. And I made reference to my book, Neoliberalism, and, um, and, the, and the global economic movement um, um, demonstrations and so on in Seattle, he made reference to that and how that influenced him. And, um, but, and, but, you know, he said that what was very important, he said something very important. And he said, oh, he's understand, also his understanding of how rigged the corporate economy works. And he talks about this false equivalence. He said that if you are against American, American, then it's as if you are you're, against the way in which how we practice the way in which we practice trade in this country, the way we practice capitalism. He said that if you're against that kind of capitalism, you're branded as an anti-capitalist or a socialist. I have been branded as a socialist, in fact. But, but I've oftentimes said that the way in which we look at capitalism has changed over time. The capitalism of yesterday is not the capitalism that we practice today. And he talks about that. He says that, and he, and he also um, speaks to that issue. He says, the kind of capitalism we have, he, say, he says, what we have is not free market capitalism. We do not have free market capitalism. What we have is rigged multinationalism. Okay? So he's all about protecting capitalism. He's all about that. Um, uh, he talks about uh, the consolidation of, of, of market power in, in the 1970s. And with this consolidation of market power in the 1970s and, 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 and to now, you find that that's, this consolidation was the, was the demise and the death of free market capitalism. And you might have heard me reference that in my book, Neoliberalism, Globalization, Income Inequality, Poverty and Resistance. So he talks about that. Then I asked him a question from, that was posed to him by a, a young man who I interviewed as well on, on, one of my, on one of the podcast episodes. And he, 
and, and which speaks to the issue of purity. How do you stay pure? How do you stay free from contamination? And so on. And he answered that so, and he answered that so beautiful. He says, that is why I am working hard he, to develop my, my, my capital and my wealth. He said that he has ran several times in various um, races and so on. And he's used a lot of his funds come from most of his, from his pocket, his own pocket. And I've oftentimes told you to, that um, the neoliberal corporation and what I am doing here, a lot of the funds come from my own pocket as well. But, you know, and that is what the young people are doing. He says most of it comes from his own pocket so as to prevent um, sabotage and to, to prevent against being impure. And so that's quite interesting. He, so he's ran before. So I, and we asked him, you ran before. What's the difference this time? What's new? We asked him that question. What's new? What's different? And um, of course, he answered that in a in a in a in a in a very powerful and a powerful way. And I, I'm gonna I won't answer that question because I'm I won't summarize that for you. You can you have a chance to review that. But I asked him a question about community development, which was very important. Which was one of the last questions? Community development. Because I said to him, how do you ensure that? How do you ensure help? Of that funding is reaching the people who need it, and it, it it is intended to reach in communities. And you know, he said, we have to get our hands dirty. We have to roll up our sleeves. And he says, you know what we have is a lot of a lot of you know a lot of these agencies that the money gets wasted on administering the policies, but because nobody the boots not on the ground boots the boots the boots we need to get people on the ground. They need to be the they need to they needs to be the legwork. And he says, he says that leaders are too obsessed with precision. With precision. And, um, and he talks about the fact that we need to find a middle ground. But he says that we, so as to prevent the, the issue of reach in community development. He says, you know, we have to micromanage agencies from bureaucratic resistance. He talks about that. We have to be able to micromanage agencies, you know, so that, so that, um, so that, uh, so, so that bureaucrats who have, Left, who, have, who are leftovers from previous administration don't stand in the way of what you're trying to do in communities. And that's another reason why some of the reach is not there. So he talks about that. Quite interesting. And of course, we talked about Elon Musk. And he said that, um, he said that I'm not against, he says he's not against Elon Musk. I'm not against Elon Musk. Um, uh, and anything that's gonna, and, and he said that if anything good is gonna happen, from Elon Musk is that he literally forces everybody in the room together. He says, I'm not against anything good. He's not against that. And he says one thing that is greater. One of the good things about Elon Musk is that he literally forces everybody in the room together. He says that people are afraid of people who oppose them and their views. And one of the things he says that um, people are, but we have to be able to come together and have a conv and have a conversation. And the beauty, the beauty about um, social media is that you have power. The power is in your hand. If you don't want to, if you don't want to read a particular tweet, you can block it or you can remove it or you can move to the next one. He says that we need to continue pushing in the end. I asked him, what is your message? What is your message for the people, for the Americans? He said, we need to keep pushing constantly. Stay engaged. Don't give up. It's important that we have a long-term strategy or you will be discouraged and you must take the losses with the wins. Again, I asked him, what is your message to the American people? He said, don't get discouraged with short-term losses. We need to continue pushing, constantly stay engaged. Don't give up. 
Having a long-term strategy is important or you will be discouraged and you must take the losses with the wins. That was my interview with John Anthony Castro. What an amazing interview. Such, what, what, such a solid young man, 38 years old, who is a Republican, but who believes in bipartisanship. And who is, and you, he is, came up in a working class family, Mexican-American, who is a multimillionaire whose company is now valued at $180,000, who had $325,000 in debt. And he is saying that if he can do it, you can do it. And he wants to be able to be involved in leading the charge to helping America to continue on the path of greatness and to make America even greater, recognizing the value of each person. And, you know, I looked at his Twitter, and I'm going to end with this. And one of his Twitter, he says, he responded as if there was, a, there was some story some time ago about an... Um, about, um, um, uh, gay parents called rapists and pedophiles in an Amtrak accident. And he tweeted, he said, it's sad that this is what politics is devolving into. Just let people live their lives. Because, as I've said, what is the ultimate of all things? The ultimate of all things is that we become one with reality, with all of our individuality. A man once said, once you label me, you negate me. So let us work together, and I invite you to check Mr. Castro out and what he's about. And because it may, it may surprise you. This is the Neoliberal Round Corporation. And this is the Neoliberal, this is the neoliberal Round, brought to you by the neoliberal, the neoliberal Corporation, and is sponsored by Anchor, a podcast from Spotify. And we are all about serving the world today. To solve tomorrow's challenges. And I'm going to ask you today, if you haven't heard again, that you can support us at HTTPS, HTTPS, anchor.fm slash the neoliberal slash support. Thank you for listening to us. Share this program with your friends and walk good. The Neoliberal Round Podcast is brought to you by the Neoliberal Corporation.